It's Gone Sideways. It's gone sideways. Uh, well, Tom Nash, thank you very much for coming on. It's gone sideways. Thanks for having me, aka DJ Hooky. Yep. Um, I think it's important for, to paint the picture for people that are just if they're listening to the podcast without yes. seeing the YouTube video. Uh, that you have these visually amazing prosthetic hooks for hands. Which yeah. is obviously where DJ Hooky came from. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking like, It'd be weird if it came from somewhere else <laughs> and well, then I had to adopt the hooks uh, just to be on brand. <laughs> Cut them off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like uh, when you were brainstorming names your DJ name, I was like yeah. D- um, I was like DJ Hooky. Um, I was like DJ Hooky must have been like towards the top of the list. I mean, well, it was it was that because I was just called Hooky generally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Before I was a DJ, yeah. you know, colloquially referred to me as Hooky, and I kind of went with it because it's easier to remember. Mm. And I was spending a lot of time in nightclubs where people were off their face. Yeah, and so if you say, "Hey, it's Tom," it's like, "Yeah, there's fifty Toms. There's enough Toms for a drum kit in this fucking nightclub." So, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> there aren't many Hookies, and then. And backing it up with the guy who's DJing with hooks for hands, it's like <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was trying to think. Yeah, if, even if you were trying to brainstorm the list, it wouldn't be like DJ Hooky or like Captain Hook or like yeah. that's probably the even, Claw, <laughs> yeah, something like good that. Good one. Yeah, yeah. That, that's also funny. Like in Australia, we have this such a reverent sense of humour that you're you're known colloquially as Hooky, right? Whereas yeah. in some other places in the world, they'd be like, oh, that's really insensitive, that's offensive. Yeah, probably, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you tap into that in your comedy. A lot of it's self-deprecating, yeah. right? And I think that's something that Australians do quite well and British do mm. quite well, Yeah, I true. Think. Um, but it just becomes part of that cultural fabric that we all have. And so it's interesting. I, I, I don't think I've spoken to many Americans about what they think about the fact that I'm called Hooky. Yeah. Um, but I have never DJed over there, actually, weirdly. I was speaking stuff over there and podcasts and things, but not uh, – and so they would refer to me as Tom. Yeah, okay. Um, but, yeah. But if you're already going to be over there speaking, couldn't you just put like your hooks up for a, for a, for for a, a DJ, DJ spot? Oh, I guess I could, yeah. Uh, I hadn't really thought about mm. that, but – I'm not sure whether I'm interested in doing that. Also, I don't really know the landscape over there as well as I do over here. Yeah, okay. I only ask that because, like, if I was in another country um, for another reason and then I, I would be also just looking up just to try and do a few comedy spots. So I wasn't sure if that mm. works the same with DJing, that you just yeah, you have such a um, a hunger for it that wherever you're going, you're like, oh, maybe I can oh, jump right. on. I, see we, I don't yeah. have a hunger for it. <laughs> Every time I get booked for a DJ set, I'm pissed off. You're like, fuck again, not again. (laughs) So let's uh, let's talk about, I guess that that path to to how you became known as Hooky, and then uh, and then um, how you got into DJing. So, where did you grow up? Where were you born? So I was born in South Africa. Actually, Uh, I'm not South African, nor either of my parents. But my father was moving around for work a lot when I was a kid, and so I happened to be born in Cape Town. Yeah. And then uh, I don't remember it as I was only there for a couple of years and then I moved to Texas and I- uh, Have you got siblings? No. Well, I have a half-sister and some stepsisters, but not full uh, siblings. Yeah. And uh, so I lived for six years in Dallas growing up and then I came to Sydney uh, around 89, 90 and I've been here ever since. 
Yeah. Uh, so my general story was that I was a pretty run of the mill. <clears throat> I was a pretty run of the mill, uh, boring teenager, uh, just going to school. I used to play guitar. I was actually, uh, you know, quite fond of music and, I think it was for the reason that I always wanted a creative outlet more than anything else, but I was quite proficient at guitar even from a young age and being more or less self-taught. And where did um, you go to school? I went to Newington. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. You went to- uh, Riverview. Uh, Riverview, that's yeah. right, yeah. I think I've been there yeah. because they used to force us to go to other schools on weekends to play sport. Sport, yep. yeah. By yeah. By the I remember, way- I remember playing basketball against Newington a bunch of times. Right, okay. So how old are you? I'm 37. 37. Okay, so you're a little bit younger than me. But back when I was in high school, uh, nothing was digitized. And so you could could actually get out of doing sport altogether if you knew how to cheat the system. What's the trick? Okay. So in the (laughs) 90s, what they would do is they would have these boards up at school and, and they would have listed on pieces of paper who was signing up to each sport. And as you well know, in each season, there's different sports that you can do, but there's usually two main competitors. Mm-hmm. For instance, it might be basketball or cricket or something yep. like that. Uh, and I think, you know, in certain seasons, and I, there are no sports that – I'm not a sporty person at all, uh, and it would be like you know football or cricket or something. I don't know what the seasons are. And so you'd have to sign up for one of them. Yeah. So what I would do is I'd sign up for both of them. Yeah. And then I would go to the first training lesson of each one on like a Tuesday. Yeah. And I would say to the guy, hey, the cricket guy, I'd say, hey, I'm actually not coming in because I signed up for football. And then I'd go to the football one and I'd say, hey, I'm not coming. I signed up for cricket or whatever. Right. And then each of the captains of each thing would look at the other board and see my name on it and think that I'd moved and cross me off. Wow. So for the whole season, I technically didn't exist. So you had you there fig- were no roll calls. You figured out this little loophole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a loophole is legal. I'm not sure this was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and did you tell other mates, or was this just your little secret? I don't remember actually. <laughs> I had a I had a really good way of getting out a lot of things. Also, we had. Did you guys have like Duke of Edinburgh yep. and uh, cadets and things? Yeah. And I think I did one week of cadets, and then I found out that you could do service band which was kind of this bullshit alternative that if you happen to play an instrument, which I did at the time, you could join the service band and once a fortnight rather than sitting on a field yelling at people, you were actually able to just go and play music in a room with a bunch of tuba players and shit. Yeah, okay. So did you um, actually do that? I did that, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> while everyone else was away on camp, which was something that I hated, our only responsibility was to go to some old people's home you know, in North Sydney and play some music to them that they couldn't hear anyway. Like that. <laughs> uh, but that sounded more fun to you than playing the sport, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Anything to do with sport or, you know, military wasn't up my alley. Were you um, a good student academically? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I was okay, mm. uh, but I, I could have been way better than I was. Yeah. You weren't uh, a standout or anything? No, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. Uh, but also, I did, like, I was one of those didn't apply myself whatsoever. Um, yep. Spent too much time probably smoking joints and playing guitar, and not enough doing actual school sure. work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but notwithstanding, I got into a reasonable university degree at Sydney, uh, doing science and psychology. Yeah. Uh, and I was doing that for about six months, and working at a pub in Balmain. I lived in Balmain. Yeah. And this was this was two thousand and yep. two thousand one. So this was the era that you could work in a pub, still go to uni, and pay rent on an apartment yeah, at wow. the same time. Yeah, those, those days, days are long gone. Yeah, those days are long gone, right? So I was living on my own, and about six months in, uh, I remember going to uni one day, and I started to feel 
really sick, like I had a flu or something. Mm. And I sent myself home on the bus and it was back to my one bedroom apartment. So I didn't have anyone there. And I just thought I'd put myself to bed and, uh, and see if I felt better the next day. And I remember texting my stepsister and saying, uh, Hey, I'm feeling a bit sick. And she's like, Oh, do you want me to take you to a doctor? And I was like, no, that's an overreaction. Obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a 19 year old boy. Everything's fine. Of course. Know? I mean, yeah. even I know 50 year old blokes that have the same, you know, same reaction. You Absolutely, could have a yeah. hole in your foot and you're like, no, yeah, I'm fine. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I had the worst night of my life, you know, quite literally, such that I was waking up in cold and hot sweats. I was feeling nauseous. I couldn't walk. So I was crawling from my uh, bedroom to the ensuite bathroom to throw up. And then I would crawl back. And then at one time I was feeling freezing cold. And so I decided to get into the shower and put hot water on myself. But then I passed out. Fuck. I mean, surely at the point where you're having to crawl to the bathroom, you're like, okay, this is, I'm properly fucked here. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe a doctor. I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I was, you know, because at this point it's like two in the morning, so I'm not going anywhere. Right? Yeah. So. And I once or twice I'd had a bad flu before, and I, it was kind of like that, but much worse. And I was <laughs> maybe this is what being an adult is like. Um, <laughs> so anyway, woke up the next morning, and I was really, really bad. And so I decided to uh, text Fran, my stepsister, and I said, "Hey, look, maybe I should see a doctor. This is pretty bad." Uh, to her credit, she dropped everything she was doing and came straight over to pick me up. And in the time that she took to come to my place, which would have been a 20-minute drive or something, I spent almost all of that time trying to get my shoes on. Fuck. Because my feet had swollen up to like twice their size. Holy shit. Yeah, which was strange. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Um, And then by the time she got to my door, uh, she looked like she'd seen a ghost because I was all pale and white, but I had a purple rash impinging upon my skin. And so she was like, I'm taking you to a hospital. That's it. And I said, uh, well, let's just go to a doctor first. And she's like, no. 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 Yeah. So she dragged me down this. I remember I lived at this really crap apartment that had this really steep driveway in Balmain. And she's like half my size and weight and dragged me down this driveway, which I can't still imagine happening. And she took me up to Balmain Hospital. And uh, they looked at me the same way she looked at me. And I, I remember thinking, I really want people to stop looking at me like that. <laughs> but you know when you get to like an emergency department mm. and it's usually, you know, you get there and it's like give us your name and your date of birth and a list of everyone you've ever fucked and then sit over there for three hours and yes. think about what you've done. So I skipped all of that shit, right? Yes. They were just like, oh, okay, we're getting you into a room right now. So sometimes you sit in a, yeah, in those wards and, and you think, oh, no one here looks that bad, but they must have seen you and go, okay, mm. this guy's fucked. He needs to be fast-tracked. Yeah, that was my first uh, fast-track. fast, fast I get a lot of fast-tracks now <laughs> to airports and things like that, but that was my first one. Yeah. They're like, come into the room. Fuck. So they bring me into this room and they start, there's these nurses that start stripping off my clothes and, I remember saying something to them like, oh, in any other situation, this might be someone's fantasy. But they didn't <laughs> seem too impressed by that. So they kind of laid me down and they were sticking You're cracking jokes and they're like, this is not the time. Well, I'm trying, right? I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah. um, and they're sticking needles into me and shit like that. And then uh, they, they said to me basically, we're not equipped to deal with this. We're sending you to RPA. And so I got into a, an ambulance and I was just shipped off to RPA how and by it, the time I, how do you feel when a hospital is saying we need to send you to another hospital because mm, like this? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I don't remember how I felt hearing that. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't something that stuck with me, surely, yeah. because otherwise I would be able to recall it, mm. but I can't. Um, I think at the time, you know, there was, a, there was a strong sense from me that they were overreacting to something. Sure. They were probably underreacting, if anything. Fuck. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I contracted meningococcal disease. Yeah. Which is, uh, can be and is deadly. And uh, the upshot of it is it causes septicemia, which is a blood poisoning. And once that's uh, gone too far, it causes gangrene. And usually that starts with your ex- extremities, so hands and feet. Yep, so that, that was the reason for the swelling of the feet. Mm-hmm. Um, do they know yeah, much about right. how you contract it? No, they don't, yeah. Oh. It's it's contracted, I guess, kind of like COVID, mm. right? It's like saliva. So they used to say things like, well, if you share drinks with people, if you share a cigarette or something like that, you can get it. If someone coughs on you into your mouth, you could probably get it, I guess. But just such a uh, behaviour that everyone is doing, right? If people share drinks, they're yeah. coughing on each other. Like it's, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's just that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. I, that didn't really bother me at that point. It still doesn't bother me today. Yep. I don't care where I got it. Yeah. Um, because what are you going to do, blame someone? Who, <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I got shipped off to RPA, and that started my really long stint in hospital. I was in hospital for 18 months after that. So I was in RPA for a month on life support and in a coma for a couple of weeks. And then I was shipped off to Concord because they – Treat the uh, how it affects your skin like burns, and Concord has the best burns unit in the country. Yeah, and so they shipped me off to the burns unit. I was there for four and a half months, and they did all my amputations, so legs first, six inches below the knee, and then a few weeks after that, arms at the elbow. So sorry, how, what was the time frame between first arriving at Balmain Hospital and and then the amputations? <clears throat> I would say six to eight weeks, okay. or something like that. So there was a couple of weeks in a coma at RPA mm. that was induced. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a couple of weeks while they were deciding what to do with me and then uh, moved off to Concord. They pretty much told me that legs had to go immediately. A couple of weeks after that, they're trying to save my arms. Mm. And that was a big one for me because not only is it such a big loss of independence, uh, it's not like legs, which is, you know, you can either be in a wheelchair or get prosthetics or something like that, but losing your arms is a huge loss of independence. Mm. And so, uh, so but you, also, you know, I was a guitarist. So that, yeah. that part of my life was going to be removed forever. Or so I thought at the time. You know. Yeah. So you're saying when you got told that you were going to lose your legs, that you could, you could swallow that pill a lot easier than losing your hands. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm not sure whether it was a combination of that, but also the cocktail of drugs they had me on at the time, because I would have been on a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I felt it was far easier to accept the losing of the legs because, mm. you know, it's posed as this kind of this is going to save your life thing. At that point you're kind of like, okay. And then uh, I remember the couple of weeks after that were, were so tough, not just mentally but physically, so much pain, that when the doctor told me uh, we had to lose the arms for me to live, uh, it was a bit like I had to pause for a second to make that decision. Um yeah, what what do you mean by you had to pause? You was- well, I think, you know, in retrospect, I, I paused for a different reason than it sounds like, but he said to me, I, he said, you have two options. You can either um, lose your arms and then, you know, move on with prosthetics uh, or you can not do that. Uh, the catch is you'll die. Yeah, fine. Right? So, so it's an ultimatum. It's not really a choice. No. But 
interestingly, at the time, it felt like the first time I ever had control over anything. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's why I savored the moment for a while, you know, because even if I'd wanted to kill myself up to that point, I didn't have the means of doing it. Yep. So you're very much so at the was, behest. Even though it was a shit choice, it just felt nice to have any choice at all for yeah, a second. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. But obviously I made the choice to imitate <laughs> yeah. them and move on. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the latter half of, well, the latter year of being in hospital was all spent uh, at this rehab hospital out that doesn't exist anymore called Prince Henry. And it was uh, it was previously an infectious diseases hospital around the turn of the last century, but it's it'd been largely shut down except for two wards, two Nightingale wards. The whole place looked like fucking Shutter Island. Um, it's interestingly, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was food because our hospital was across the road from Long Bay Jail <laughs> and we posited that possibly the only difference between the two institutions is that they got better food than we did. I would say you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who's eaten the food there, I, yeah. I found it was not too bad. In jail. Well, I'll um, tell you something. The the food at Prince Henry was the worst food I've ever had. I didn't even know if it is food. Like, <laughs> uh, I'll give you a small anecdote, right? So there's because the that hospital was largely shut down and dilapidated. There was a lot of local flora and fauna that had just taken over, and there was a bunch of stray cats that lived underneath, presumably underneath one of the buildings, and we sometimes used to feed them. And often a lot of the hospital food that we would feed the cats, they didn't identify as food. Like they wouldn't even sniff it. Like there, there was this one dish called it was, it was Swedish meatballs, they called it, mm. by name only perhaps, mm. right? These things were like hockey pucks or something. They were so hard you couldn't penetrate them with a knife. Far out. They were, they were usually black. And then we would try and give them to the cats. And the cats would just regard them as sundry like miscellaneous objects. But virtually you know, inedible. Just, yeah. It would just be like, you know, laser printer cartridge shopping bag Swedish meatball. Not, yep. you know, this is an edible piece of food. You knew there was bad food in jail when, uh, like, when guys try to give it away and no one wanted it. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> ones like a fish lentil curry and, like, a vegetarian frittata. There were days when, like, you couldn't – when no one was giving away anything, when you had, like, uh, a, like a pizza pack or, um, like, bur- beef burgers or What's something like that. a pizza pack? You get, like, um, like a – Tortilla, yeah. and you get some like pepperoni slices and tomato, and like so you just put some margarine on it, and then you and oh, it's got cheese, it's got like um, pre-shredded so, mozzarella that has that yep. anti-coagulating agent in it, so yep. it doesn't melt properly. Like yeah, fucking. So you put all that. You, so you'd have like in your buy up, you could buy you could buy like various grocery items for yourself. I'd have like tomato sauce and barbecue sauce, so I'd put the the butter on the tortilla, and then I'd put the cheese and the pepperoni and then some drizzle with some sauce, and you'd yeah. put it through the conveyor toaster, mm. and next thing you know, you got a pizza. And, uh, you know, so that's- Or do not- you? <laughs> Pizza-ish, you know. Yeah. It's for- okay, it- if you had the option of eating one of those pizzas again or one of the dog pizzas that you used to make, <laughs> what would it be? Well, uh, that's a good question. I think I- I'd still go with the prison pizza. Oh, really? It's la- it was a larger serving. The- the because dog- it's a larger serving. <laughs> the dog- is that the only criteria? <laughs> well, it's- I mean, the, also with the dog pizzas, we used a sweet potato mash as the as the base. Oh um, yeah, because dogs um, that they shouldn't have too much. Um, there was too much sodium in the the regular pizza sauce. Right. For dogs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we we try to make them like nutritionally improved for dogs. So it was like a sweet potato mash base, and then like chicken breast or kangaroo bacon that we yeah. use on them. We did. They were still human. It was still human grade food. Yeah. But. Um, 
Yeah, I think I'd still go with the. Pe- I'm a pepperoni lover, so. I was and what like, did you put the the base? Is it just the same as you would use for a normal pizza? No, it's like a, it was like a smaller flour tortilla. Okay, so it's a tortilla. Yeah. Yes. Um, and did you ever try using corn tortillas for that? Um, I don't recall. I don't think so. My dog really likes corn tortillas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We found pretty much all dogs loved the the pizzas. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we had so many photos on social media of just people coming for their dog's birthday. Or um or just coming there. Sometimes there'd be six people sitting there with ten dogs, and yeah. they'd spend like a hundred dollars on the human menu and hundred and fifty dollars on the dog menu. Yeah, yeah. and I was <laughs> amazing. Yes, that's great. And they can't review you, so it's a perfect crime. Well, <laughs> a guy did. We we had to change on Uber Eats because we we had the dog pizzas listed for sale, mm. and um I had to add dog pizzas designed for dogs, not humans, because yeah. a guy ordered the dog pizzas, yeah, ate them, and then gave us a three star review, and I was like. <laughs> I was like, three stars feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, actually. Like three stars yeah. because they're small, right? They're not yeah. they're like this big. So a guy that orders that, it has a sweet potato um, mash base, mm. and then he ate that. It was like, oh, it's a six out of ten. <laughs> so, But, but do, do, you, do you test them? When you made them, mm. were you eating, eating them to test them? or? Uh, I, I ate them just as like they were fine, but like nowhere near as good as like a gourmet human pizza that right. we're cooking up. Because the test would be if you had the dog pizza. Mm. But what you would give to the dog, and then you add salt to it because they mm. obviously can't have as much salt. Is that yep, right? Yep, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you would get an idea of maybe how they would react to it. Well, I mean, I just it was just I'm not that excited by a sweet potato mash base compared to a tomato sauce base or a barbecue base, right? <laughs> with sure. with a bunch of with four different meats on it or something like that. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, so they then they, they, were, they weren't designed to. For someone to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to save a few dollars and get the dog pizza um, because no. it still sounds good. It was supposed to be a, a, a good doggo treat. But, I mean, at the same time, they have to put that label on. You ever buy cans of dog food, mm. which I don't typically, but you read on it, you know, this is a pet food only. Yeah. Which is concerning. Yes. We have to communicate that to the yes. public. Yes. Well, I, you don't, yeah, you, you underestimate how uh, silly people can be. I, I, I had to add, I thought dog, pe- I thought dog menu was mm. enough to be like, oh, this menu is for dogs. Yeah. You th- <laughs> Turns out that's not, that's not yeah. enough. <laughs> Designed for dogs, not yeah. humans. <laughs> so. Uh, yes, but Sorry, so that's there. all right. We're, <laughs> we're always we're always keen to do, go down a rabbit hole on this podcast. Yeah. So yeah, the food was shit. And, and so at this point, did you have prosthetics uh, hands? At this point, not yet. Yeah. Okay. So the rehab hospital was for getting prosthetics and learning how to use them. Okay. The problem that I had was I a lot of my skin was open wounds still because the way the meningococcal affects you is you know all the scarring on my face that you see. And mm. for those who are listening and not watching. Uh, it's a bit, bit of a Freddy Krueger vibe going on, uh, but that's all from the meningococcal septicemia. And so I had those at the end of my legs as well and bits on my arms. And so it's hard to get prosthetics on there and start using them when you've got open wounds because they can make them worse. Of course. And, yeah. and were you in uh, a lot of pain? Yeah, I was in quite a lot of pain. I was not as much pain as I was in Concord mm-hmm. uh, because I had wound dressing changes there that are – you know, if you ha- have an experience of zero to ten pain levels in your life, which let's say I did before, this would hit a hundred or a hundred and twenty. It's it's the oh. kind of pain that you you didn't know existed oh until my. it happened, man. And so I was somewhat on the other side of that, and so comparatively, I wasn't in as much pain as that. But it was still painful to walk. Obviously, getting up on two prosthetic legs, I haven't borne weight. I haven't even been upright 
for six months. Mm. Uh, and so it took longer than than it normally does, I think, on average for people using prosthetics, uh, particularly with the walking. Were so. there anyone else around you in this um, rehab facility that also had men- meningococcal or was it no. just it's, – yeah. I don't think there was anyone in the state that had meningococcal. It's, yeah, it's not a it's, very it's, common okay. um, thing. Yeah. So I know there were a few people that got it around the time, but yeah. they're varying degrees of severity, right? So if you catch it early enough, you can make a full recovery. Mm. If you catch it too late, it'll kill you. Yeah. And so I'm sort of in the Goldilocks zone mm. where it produces DJs. <laughs> <laughs> Threading uh, the needle on that one, yeah. Okay. yeah it's very, yeah. very small. Well, lucky it's scarce, or I'd be out of a job. Um, <laughs> We've already got a DJ hooking on tonight, yeah, mate. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so no, I didn't have any. I didn't have anybody that. Everyone that was in my ward in Prince Henry Hospital, it was a rehab ward. Yep. And so it was predominantly older people who'd lost legs to diabetes. Or things like that. Uh, and then there was another ward that was open that was the spinal ward. And that's where all the fun people were because that's where all the younger kids that were my age totally. who'd broken their backs doing stupid shit, you know, like jumping off cliffs and things. But that kind of made them interesting people. And so I spent a lot of time with them. And they were, you know, around my age. Yep. And so I made quite a few friends while I was there. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting story once, actually. Uh, this was when I, it was kind of later in the piece and I'd been walking for a bit. So it was towards the end of my stint, uh, but I'd, I'd made a few friends there and one of them, so three of them were in wheelchairs. I had, there was one guy that was a paraplegic so he could use his hands. He used to be a mechanic. And there was another guy who was just 18 years old, this kid, and he was quadriplegic, but they put him in a, um, a what I call a super expensive wheelchair because it used to go at like 20 kilometers an hour. This thing, it was crazy, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, it was borderline malpractice to put him in this thing because it was like <laughs> he's going to go fast. Like so put him on the highway. Um, and then there was another guy who uh, was he was a paraplegic and he was in a wheelchair, but he'd lost one leg. And he used to be a, an ex BMX rider, and so he was obsessed with doing like tricks on his wheelchair, like jumping off uh, walls and things. Some like of those guys you just can't stop. Yeah. They're crazy, right? Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> so those three guys. Uh, and then there was other, one other guy who I met one night who was able, he looked able-bodied just like you, but he was a quadriplegic from the neck down in the sense that he just couldn't feel anything. So he could operate, but he had no sensation. So he was always at risk of like stepping on broken glass or things like that that might cut his foot. Wait, so he could um, move He could move his he could body, move, yeah. but he just couldn't feel it. He couldn't feel anything from the neck down. I I'd never even, heard about this. I didn't even know that was yeah. a thing. yeah. And so we were all hanging out together one night. So it was the mechanic, the super expensive wheelchair guy, uh, ex-BMX guy, and the other guy who I call Captain Upright just to um, <laughs> sort of preserve his uh, <laughs> privacy. <laughs> and uh, we were drinking, you know, on the balcony of the, of the ward, and uh, someone said, I forget who suggested it, they're like, let's go and break into one of the abandoned wards. And we're all pretty drunk, so we're like, yeah, that sounds like a fucking great idea. So it, it was only Captain Upright and I that were standing and walking and the other guys were in chairs. And so we broke into this uh, abandoned ward. The mechanic actually grabbed a piece of metal and, like, jimmied the lock from the outside, burst us into the place. 
And we were just sort of checking it out. It again, it looked like Shutter Island. You know, what I mean, there were like r- dubious rooms that looked like they could have been used for electric shock treatment and things. Also, this would have like visually looked like the funniest Motley Crew, like oh, storming yeah. in there. Imagine it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, we're just, and at one point, I think you know the XBMX guy found the fire hose and turned it on. It was just it, uh, yeah, we needed to get out of just there. Just lads right? being lads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, but we, what happened was the doors had actually shut behind us and locked us in. So we're actually locked into this ward. Wow. And so uh, somebody noticed that because there were nightingale wards, what you'd have is you'd have the main ward and then you'd have sort of a verandary type thing. And then there was like a balcony outside that. And we identified that we could probably get out via that way, but the veranda type area was littered with all of this shit on the floor and the, the stairs leading out to the balcony had perished Fuck. over time. And so I remember thinking to myself, okay, let's let's break down the problem here. And the XBMI, X, uh, sorry, the super expensive wheelchair guy said, to hell with breaking down the problem, let's just break down the door. <laughs> and so he went at full pelt at this door between the ward and the veranda and he smashed it open, right? And the XBMX guy actually said, he's like, I know that those stairs have perished, but I can actually make a jump and, and get down there. Uh, but he can't get through because there's a there's a double doors that had one of those latches up really high, which I couldn't reach, right? Um, but uh, the Captain Upright guy could definitely reach it. He was like six foot five, this guy. He was a big guy, yeah. Islander dude. And he said, but I, I don't want to walk through all of that stuff because I'm going to cut my foot on something. There's all sorts of shit on the floor, syringes and broken glass. Yeah. And I thought, that's where I come in, right? Yeah. I, if I step on broken glass, no one's going to give a shit. Like nothing's going to happen. So I went into the veranda and I sort of cleared this path with my feet for Captain Upright. And then he followed me like just right behind me, like like a conga line of stupidity. He gets to the door, unlatches the door. We go back through. We let through XBMX. He rolls out. And then he makes this jump off the edge of the veranda over the perished steps onto the ground. And then is able to go back around and unlock us using the little piece of metal that uh, the mechanic had Jimmy the. It sounds robot. like the disability version of Marvel that everyone had these complimentary superpowers. That's right. <laughs> I thought of it as like I'm, I'm, I'm in Adam Smith's pin factory and I'm understanding how the division of labor is finally working. You know? um, everyone had something to bring to the everyone table had something that to was do. different. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, right, because the way, like, the way you think about it, you're kind of like – you you can use certain people's skills that they develop for very specific things, yeah. Uh, and often society doesn't think about it that way. They're kind of like, let's put a square peg in a round hole. Whereas I think the, the, some of the best ways of doing it are find out what you do really well and then get even better at doing it. You know? Specialize in that, mm. yeah. At this stage uh, during the re- the rehab, what was your mental state like? Had you um, like? I imagine it's quite a process to just start to accept the the new the new normal or the the way you, your life has changed. From yeah, like it's only a few months ago you were at uni at the the start mm. of a life that you were kind of starting to the picture where that was going to unfold to. Yeah, I mean, look, it was not really getting used to a used to a new reality. It was getting used to an ever evolving reality. Yeah, okay. Because you know, from month to month the trajectory of what you think is going to happen would change. Mm. And so you actually learn to forget about what you think is going to happen. Yeah. And you just uh, allow things to happen to you and your immediate future becomes far more malleable. And uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I don't like to set myself too many long-term goals Mm. 
because there are too many people with their finger in the pie that can change that on you yep. and that can become disheartening. And I, I much rather prefer to sort of go with the flow and take opportunities as they come. And, you know, having that future that is not certain is far more exciting because I think if I was one of those people that, uh, you know, I know exactly where I'm going to be five years from now, my five-year plan, uh, I'd probably bore myself to death. Yep, that's yeah. fair. So you were able to um, think about that in those terms because it was ever evolving. But um, did it? I, uh, it sounds like you still have a level of optimism to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm way more optimistic than I should be. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've been asked that a few times, and I think look, you can't discount the fact that there might be some precursory hereditary aspect to one's ability to be positive in the face of adversity. Mm -hmm. But the more adversity you, you experience, the better you get at dealing with it. I know that. Yeah. Um, and so it's probably a combination of the two, if I'm being honest, and a lot of luck, you know. Uh, yeah, this happening to me in a country where I was supported by a medical system and also was lucky enough to have friends and family to support me through it, yep. which are opportunities that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's not something that I can take credit for. I, I um, had a similar experience in, in prison where I had um, just like an ongoing series of setbacks of things. Whenever I got my hopes up about something, it just they, all, they got dashed and it mm. – um, Really started to stop me from um, from looking forward um, to or getting my hopes up about things, I guess. Um, but uh, they didn't. I wouldn't say that that was the same thing as killing my optimism. I think it just made me um, just start to be more realistic about the things that I was optimistic about. Um, so you were able to manage your expectations better. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because. Uh, you know, me, my ideas about thinking I was going to get out within a couple of weeks were dashed. Just, um, you know, my, my family visits got cancelled because of COVID and all these kinds of things. And then when I started to just think about um, what, what was the I still had my, my, my health. I was still having a laugh like, with other guys in there. There were just all these other things that, that were okay that I was able to say to myself, okay, um, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. Um, let's just celebrate the things that you still do have. That's true, yeah. I mean, focusing on, on what you have versus what you don't have mm. and also what you can control and what you can't control. Yeah. Like getting upset about things that you can't control is largely futile, and I know it's like an instinctual response that we all have, mm. uh, but the better that you get at not caring about those things and yep. focusing on what you do control, it's a skill that you develop that such that you get better at that in an exponential way. Um, also, uh, you touched on that managing expectations. That's an interesting concept that I always like to talk about, which is that there's a balance with it, right? Because it's not that you want to have expectations that are too high, but you also don't want to have expectations that are too low. Yeah. Uh, because there's this, there's a thing called the nocebo effect. Do you know about this? No. It's, it's the inverse to the placebo effect, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yes. right? Um, and it's that, you know, the no nocebo effect means that when you have low expectations of outcomes, you act in a way uh, that would see that those outcomes wouldn't actually come to pass. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a classic example might be if you're up for a promotion at work or something like that, but you don't believe that you'll get it, you'll act in such a way that you definitely won't get it. Yep. You know, so finding that balance between positive and negative with expectations, being open to good things happening, but not disappointed when they don't, 
is a really important balance to strike. There's a guy I had on a couple of weeks ago, Brett Canellan, who got bitten on his leg by a shark, and he was talking about the fact that he had doctors tell him, like, you'll never surf again or you won't be able to, like, do running or all these kind of things. And he does all these things now. And so he was saying, similar to that, that, um, you know, sometimes doctors can do someone a disservice when they say um, these are the things you're not, you're not going to be able to do because mm. then people can believe that because they're hearing it from a medical pres- professional and yeah. never really. Um, yeah, being definitive about anything is really probably not mm. great. Yeah, uh, they think, you know, that they're protecting someone by saying, hey, like, don't get your hopes up. Yeah, but, and um, I'm sure for some people mm. that would be a great motivator. You Absolutely. Know, like, and I've yeah. seen it before. Oh, you'll never walk again, but then they make it their business They say, to do I'll that. show you, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, exactly. For me, I'd be the same. I'd be like, that's a red rag to a bull. Mm. I'm going to show you. Yeah. But there are some other people that, that say, oh, okay, well, that's that that's limited my beliefs about what I can do. Yeah. Yeah, so, so having a sort of catch-all – um, attitude towards patients like mm. that, you'd probably just have to err on the side of, well, you know, it's not impossible, but it would be really difficult. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's cool because, um, yeah, you're right that you don't, you can set your, your expectations, but, um, yeah, you still want to be able to dare to dream, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Like I, I think now I have these like big dreams for what I'd like to be able to do with comedy, but it all start it all starts with just realistic steps. It's yeah. like what can I do in the next twelve months? Yeah, that's um, exactly that's, right. That's realistic. Yeah, and, and that that kind of harks back to the goal setting stuff as well, which is that you you know if you for your comedy had a, had an idea of you know where you want to be in five years, mm. you you might it might make you too myopic in a way to not see opportunities presented to you when they are. Mm. And that's why I always like to be kind of, uh, I don't know, agile in a way that, you know, somebody might steer you down a completely separate path you didn't know was amazing for you and you need to be open to those things. I couldn't agree more because there's so many times where I have uh, done gigs where, like, so another door has opened, mm. whether it's, um, you know, a media interview or a podcast or doing another gig or, um, like, all, all these other kinds of opportunities have all come from just deciding to do that one shit gig that I was like, oh, fuck, what am I even doing? It's going to be 20 people or 15 people, but then like, the, the next door opens, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it just reminds you, like, this is all part of, the like, a, a process. Yes. Um, so, And yeah. you don't know where those – are going to lead. Actually, that's a good segue for what happened to me after uh, hospital. Yeah, which was that I I eventually got out and I had two prosthetics and uh, arms and two prosthetic legs. And by the time I started living uh, independently again, yeah, uh, I wanted to conquer playing the guitar again with yeah. the hooks. Yes, and so, so I actually, sorry, you had the hooks at this stage. I had the hooks at this point. Yes, so this is out of hospital now. So I I, so I think I, I read somewhere that, um, that you the, the hooks weren't the first. Prosthetic, that yeah, you that's right. They gave me hands. Yeah, well, they kind of looked a bit like hands. Yeah, but also they looked largely shit. Yeah. Um. So they imagine your hand like that if you're picking up a chess piece. Yeah. Uh. That that exactly yeah. that that's what they look like, and yeah. that's how much they open, like a yeah. pinch. Yeah. Okay. So good for giving someone a nipple cripple. That's about it. Yeah. Um. They're pretty useless. They're quite heavy. They're really cumbersome. And, and functional wise, they weren't that functional. No. Yeah. yeah. Not really. Not for not for me anyway. I'm sure people get a kick out of it, but I think they're largely crap. So at one point you tested the hands and you're like, "What else have you got?" <laughs> like, uh, yeah, uh, no, no. Op- she she'd sort of given me the, the options, options yep. already. Uh, yeah, the, the occupational therapist at that point. And I didn't when I looked at this hook. I remember thinking, "How do you do anything with that?" <laughs> but as soon as I put it on, it was really lightweight, and I, I realized how to open it. 
And then I started picking stuff up and I'm like, oh, this is this way better. Is far superior. I could hold a glass and I could hold a cigarette. So I was like, all right. Tick, tick. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're my first two. And, yeah. and you said that they're obviously lighter. Yeah, they're lighter. Yeah. So that would have been, it just would have I felt like just okay, yeah. much They're just much easier to yeah. use. And I really like lightweight tech. Like, yeah. I like to travel light. I like to, I don't like too much junk. <clears throat> yep. And uh, yeah, lightweight technology has always been. Uh, something that I favour, I guess. Yeah. And so, sorry, did you have a follow-up? No, go ahead. So you, so you, you've got the hooks, and you, and you've, you're revisiting the guitar. Mm. Yeah. So, well, what, what I did was I, I started designing adaptations for my hooks that would enable me to play the guitar, and a lot of them were sort of pie in the sky. A lot of them were just really bad designs. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a designer at all. Yeah. Right. And so I'm just using my working knowledge of the guitar to think, okay, well, maybe I can have something that would play like a power chord, but it's like a stamp, and then I can use that on a guitar. But then the further I go up the fretboard, the the distance between the frets gets smaller, and so I wouldn't be able to do that all the way up. Yeah. Fine. And then I realized that if I just open-tuned the guitar, I wouldn't need that imprint, and I would need just a stick that went across it. And I realized what I was basically designing was a slide. And so I went and found a guitar engineer and I got him to design what I'd drawn and he, he did like a pick holder in the right hook and then I just converted my Stratocaster to like a lap steel, raised the action and put some flat wound strings on it. By the first time I saw it, I, I could play it instantly because I already had the knowledge of playing the guitar. It was just getting around the physicality of it. Wow. And so I was instantly back playing the guitar again. Holy shit. But the interesting thing was is not the physicality of playing the guitar with hooks. It was what it did for me mentally because, first of all, I had my creative outlet back. Yeah. Secondly, I had overcome something that was so ridiculous that all of my, uh, you know, concerns that I had when I was younger about writing original music and playing in front of people and making a band – all of those um, self-conscious thoughts seemed to pale in comparison to what I'd overcome. Yeah. And so I just, I did that. I started a band, you know, with a couple of friends and we produced music and we went on tours and things like that. And, um, you know, coming back to what you were saying about you never know where a path will take you. Yeah. Uh, doing that band and it was not a very good band, right? <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty crap. But, but it must have felt awesome to be back in a band. It felt uh, awesome uh, to be back in a band and be making music and yeah. have a creative outlet. But mm. it also introduced me to a lot of people who worked in nightclubs because we would play in nightclubs. Yeah. And so towards the end of my music business course, I had to do some work experience. So that's where I went. I went to a club in the cross and I was like, uh, I just asked the guy, I was like, hey, you know me from playing you know, in that band thing. You know, Will you give me some work experience uh, helping out at the club. So he gave me work experience uh, at Candy's apartment yep. on Bayswater Road. Yep. This would have been back in, I think, end of 2005 or 2006. Back when the cross was just absolutely heaving. Yeah, that's yeah. right, in, the, in its glory days, I guess. And I did a pretty good job of running their Thursday night parties. And then Chris and I, who was, he was my band member, but he's also my closest friend, uh, had talked about how we should – do that together, but our own night because we weren't getting any remuneration for doing that from Candies. And uh, it was just, I guess it was a lucky timing that we'd been looking for places to do something like that. And I got a call from uh, the owner of Club 77 yep. uh, who said, we just had our Saturday night party promoter leave. She's moving to Melbourne. Do you want to have a crack at, you know, doing it for a couple of months? And I was like, yeah. 
So we did it for 15 years. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. That's and, a- and so that was actually how I made myself a DJ was that we started the club first mm. and then I put myself on. Chris and I both played. He'd actually DJed a couple of times before or more than a couple of times. Um, he had a bit of experience, not as like a proper DJ, um, but sort of just song after song kind of DJ. Yeah. And that's all I ever intended to be because it was just filling up space in the night. But I thought to myself, like, you know, <clears throat> having worked at Candies, I was like, there were all these DJs that kept emailing and wanting gigs that I was having to filter through. And they're like spending months learning how to DJ. They're buying all this equipment and they're doing mixtapes and they're sending emails and please put me on, you know, for $50 in a craft single or like 8 p.m. slot or whatever it is. And I thought to myself at the time, I was like, it's got to be a better way to become a DJ than this. <laughs> and so we did that. We just started a club and we made the club popular based on different contexts. Like we used to do theme parties and we did outlandish advertising and we scheduled all the music and the people that work there and the drinks and and people came for the party, not for the DJs. But then we just sort of slot ourselves in like this musical Trojan horse type thing. Yep. So your advice to uh, up-and-coming DJs would be to start as a promoter. <laughs> well, not necessarily because I, my advice to up-and-coming DJs is just do something that everyone else isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's yeah pretty handy when um, you're you're running the room. You can just chuck yourself in, and yeah. then yeah, uh, I mean even if you go even if you go poorly, <laughs> no one. I think that no actually became a, a quite a well worn path since we did it in yeah. two thousand six. Um, there weren't that many people doing that before, um, but yeah, a lot of people started doing that afterwards. So just uh, do something different. I yeah, guess, yeah. And that was Saturday nights that you were running. Yeah, Saturday yeah. nights at Club Seventy Seven, and we were there for like eight years. Yeah, I mean, after about six months, I actually became an okay DJ, and then after a couple of years, we actually got pretty good. I mean, I grew up in <laughs> Sydney. I know, like Club Seventy Seven was revered back in the day as being yeah. like one of the the biggest clubs in Sydney. Yeah, you might have even found yourself down there one Saturday night at three o'clock in the morning. I'm sure I did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember you DJing, but I mean, I was usually like very. That uh, means month- you either had a really was, good time. I was usually very mounted on pingers. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was also the heyday of really good ecstasy in Sydney. Yeah, so it was yeah, definitely yeah. <laughs> it was everywhere. Probably uh, is now. I wouldn't know, but like, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Usually, I think um, ecstasy kind of died in the ass since like now, like MDMA just um, seemed to to take over from that, right? But I was uh, always more of a hallucinogens person. Yeah, yeah right. I liked hallucinogens. Oh, well, it's, it's it's weird that we didn't cross paths then because that was my uh, <laughs> <laughs> my areas of specialty. For- well, you know, when you're a DJ, you don't have to buy anything. So. True. <laughs> Another one of the perks. Yeah. So it started for you as uh, you, you just DJing because you c- you could, and then you, you just, your skills kind of just intuitively picked up from there. Yeah, you learn quickly when you're thrown <laughs> in the deep end. Yeah, I think that's true of most things. Yeah, and so playing my first set to 500 people was nerve wracking in the beginning, and then for the first I'd say 30 seconds. Yep. Until you realize how little people give a shit. Yes. About what you're doing. <laughs> as long as the music's pumping, yeah, they're yeah, not. They don't care. They're not going. Oh, I don't know about that transition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one gives a shit. So, yeah. uh, I mean that. It, yeah, you've just rem- made me remember just the awesome part I read from your book, which is coming out, which is the epilogue, which was I must have been one of the first times that you were DJing at Club Seventy Seven. Mm. Uh, yes. Did you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, I, I the reason I I chose that as a prologue was because it was a bit of a a bit of a taste of what things became at the end. Because I think a lot of the time when you pick up a book written by someone like me, you probably make a bunch of assumptions about what's going to be in it, and that's exists there to kind of set the reader straight that it might be a bit more unexpected than you're expecting. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was a night, I think, was probably a few months into running the club or something like that, and we we did a party called Masquerade, which is a masquerade ball, yep. but a rave style awesome. thing. Um, thanks. That's a good name, right? Yeah. yeah fucking awesome. Yeah, it's nice of you to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I I hadn't DJed that much and I was still a little bit apprehensive about, you know, playing it in really packed nights. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to hold a line outside uh, of people trying to get into the club and we were already over capacity. And I had a friend come up and put a tap of acid on my tongue and I was just like- Good friend. Oh, yeah, good friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, ah, oh, I wasn't planning on wanting that. But then when it was there, I was like, let's see how this goes. <laughs> and um, so I had to sort of amble through these you know, sweaty masses of people, just complete sardine-style nightclub. And that's when I ran into the guy at the bar, I remember. This was you could smoke it. Maybe you could smoke at nightclubs. Maybe you couldn't, but I was smoking. Uh, I used to be I smoked Yeah, cigarettes. I think yeah, that was back before they changed the smoking laws. Yeah. yeah, I was yep. definitely doing it when you couldn't, but uh, I think you could yep. in 2006. Yeah. And I remember uh, I went to the bar to get a drink for my set and I flicked, I used to flick a cigarette packet up and then pull it out with my teeth. And there was a guy next to me who didn't know who I was, obviously, and he's like, oh, that's amazing. And I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm used to things that I do with my hooks, so it's not that amazing to me. Yes, of course. This um, is your everyday life. Right? Yeah, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, right. And uh, the guy asked me, he's like, oh, so what, what happened to you? And I often make up bullshit stories particularly in nightclubs when I don't want to have the medical conversation with somebody because that, and they don't either, if yes. they're being honest, you know? Yeah. And so I told him I was in a trapeze accident <laughs> where someone was holding my arms and then someone grabbed my legs and just ripped me apart. And uh, he loved it. He yeah, was, of course. Was wide oh, my like, God, oh. bro. And he would have gone back to his friends and be like, you never know what I just fucking meant. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I still contend we both left with better stories that night than if I'd told the truth. Yeah. Um. And and then, yeah, I had to DJ and I'd kind of, in, in my state where the, the acid was coming on, like I was a little bit more paranoid and apprehensive about how my set was going to go and what I was going to do. I would be. I'd be, yeah. if I was chipping balls. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of like, you know, you're in this dark nightclub and there's two decks in front of you mm. and they're all lit up by coloured LEDs and those start to sort of float a bit in three-dimensional space yeah. such that you don't really know what to press? Or I'd be chipping. Or I'd be like, what? all the colors would blur. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So and, uh, <laughs> you made it hard for yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> well, my friend made it hard for me. No, yeah, oh, I, I can't blame him. I love him. But um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. so uh, but Chris was great. He was like, look, you know how to do this. It's fine. He's like, just press this one, press that one. Like, you know, this is not a dead mouse set. You know what I mean? Play a few rock songs or whatever it is, and just shut up. And I'm yep. like, okay, fine. So I get up there, I start playing. And it was it was amazing. Like everything was perfect. Uh, I probably thought that it was going better than it was at the time, but the crowd was responding perfectly to it. And so all of that apprehension just seemed to peter out to an extent and I was just enjoying 
what I have always enjoyed about DJing, which isn't as much the performative aspect, but just the fact that it's the only time in the night where it's you're alone, you know, get hassled by people. Yeah, that's cool. I never thought about yeah. that part of it. Yeah. yeah, it's just you and listening to music. That's it, you know. There's no, like, shit conversations about, you know, rental prices with some guy at the bar or, you know, um, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is. Wow, okay. And, so you get that's the only place you get a bit of peace. In that's the only place you get peace, yeah. And uh, just the one thing that I remembered so vividly from that night was – you know how usually when there's a DJ and like someone will go and try and give them a high five mm. or shake hands with them or something. <laughs> and our D- DJ booth was a bit elevated at the time. And I remember this guy and I, I was really early in the club scene. So no, no one really knew who I was. And some guy extends his hand up to like shake my hand. And I was just like, oh yeah. And I just slapped it with the hook and his face was just like. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you say that the performative aspect, you kind of downplayed that, but I saw some of the uh, pictures of you on your Instagram where, like, mm. you've been DJing and, like, obviously, like, a massive beat has just dropped and you're just there with both yeah. hooks up and the crowd's going nuts. I'm like, yeah, I didn't like- say I wasn't good at it. <laughs> you look like an absolute rock god. And I'm like, this looks awesome. You, you got to – because what else are you doing? Like, yeah. that's the that's what DJs like. Yeah, you're pressing play and then you're mixing – you're beat mixing something. Unless you're one of those annoying people that uses the filter too much, you've mm. got to do something to sort of – get the crowd a bit more interactive. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the conversation that you have with the crowd when you're DJing is very much a mem- momentum-building experience Yeah, where the more excited you are to be there, the, the better they're going to respond and then the better you're going to play. Yeah. And okay, that becomes so a positive feedback loop. It's just, so when yeah. you see those DJs that are kind of just like looking down and doing technical shit and the crowd's just like, should we leave? It's the exact same with comedy. You know, the more Mm. an audience is laughing and is into it, the better the performance becomes. Exactly. Positive (laughs) feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to – sometimes it's your responsibility to generate, you know, the spark or the kernel of that positive feedback. Totally. Yeah. So how often do you DJ now? So Starfuckers, which is the club that we started, uh, ended in a weekly capacity in about, I think, 2018 or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we just do periodical parties, which are like our big theme parties. So we do one for Mardi Gras. We do one for Halloween. Uh, And so we still do those ones. And then occasionally we DJ at other places. We've done Ministry of Sound for the past couple of years. They do um, like an annual event and then smaller gigs around around the city from time to time. But not a a hell of a lot these days. Yeah. It's it's more – just uh, something that you do for for fun more than being a, a, a money spinner. Which is so yeah. much better. I, yeah. I, like I can't tell you how much more I enjoy DJing now than I did when it was work. Yeah, okay. Know? Why is, um, why is that, do you think? Well, it's it's like all those bullshit artists that are like, follow your passion. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's a stupid idea um, because you'll ruin your passion. Uh, you'll ruin it yeah. real quick. As soon as you rely on it for income. Um, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I saw uh, there's a comedian, uh, Reese Nicholson, who I saw not too long ago talk about that on stage, saying like, "Yeah, I, I love what I do, but I still like if I won the lottery, like I wouldn't do it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I always have taken the opinion like find something that you're good at, good at, mm. and then try to enjoy a facet of it, or, mm. or or doing it to some extent, or something that you don't mind doing and get good at doing that, or something. Yeah. But if you do something that you truly love, and I don't actually believe I've ever had a passion for anything because uh, I'm one of those people that has fleeting interests in things. Yeah. So I'll spend three years researching everything about astronomy 
and then I just won't read it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll get into photography for like two years and I'll know everything about photography and then I just won't take any photos. Wow. So I like I like learning little bits about things and having a more of a rich tapestry of knowledge of life than getting spending a whole career doing one thing. Sure, but the, the, the interest in music seems to have been pretty ongoing. It's an interest in having a creative outlet. Yeah. 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 But obviously, like, it was running parties and DJing was something that we happened to be good at. Mm. And we didn't hate. We we liked doing it. Yep. I wouldn't call it a passion. Yep. But it's a good way to make it cross. I, I feel with like with comedy, I know that I, I don't love every gig, but I know that to do the ones I love, I have to do the, one, the ones, the, the ones you don't yeah, love yeah, as yeah. well. Um, yeah, that's true. And because sometimes you don't know. Sometimes the ones that you think are going to be a nightmare turn out to be some of the best nights of your life. Mm. And, 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 yeah, so uh, you got to. I find you just got to sign up for all of it. And, yeah, you uh, do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Take the good with the bad, absolutely. And there's definitely bad DJ gigs out there. <laughs> I'll tell I'm you. Sure. I'll tell you about one of them if you want. Yeah, go okay? ahead. And I'm not supposed to because this is in my book, but and I'll, it'll be more detailed in the book. But I'll tell mm. you the story anyway. I'll give you a pricey version. Um, but we got booked for this gig that was a few hours south of Sydney. I'll just say it was a coastal kind of pub, and we didn't really know anything about it, save to say that w- there were some. People on our agency that had played there before, so it couldn't be too bad. And uh, <clears throat> I, I don't think I was even in town when I got booked and, and then got back to Australia and we had to go drive down. It was too far. You couldn't do it in one day. You had to stay down there. And typically when you when you play venues that are rural, they'll say, oh, yeah, you can stay above the pub you're playing at, which I don't like to do because those places are often reserved for people who have had too much to drink and yep. they're not really accommodation. Yeah. So I, I went to try and book a separate accommodation, but it was like a long weekend. So I couldn't find anything. And I, I found this motor in that was like half an hour further down south than we were even going. We get down there. We were, we're driving down the south coast, and I remember calling one of my DJ friends who'd played there a couple of months before that. And she's bigger than us. She plays better gigs than us, but she'd played this. And I was like, oh, hey, uh, and I won't say who she is. I was like, uh, we're going down to play this place X. What's it like? And she just wrote back, uh, turn around, go back. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah. yeah. And I said, like, I told Chris what it said. And he's like, oh, like, do you, could she be like Joking. hyperbolic here? Mm. Is she prone to uh, exaggerating? And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. She's like, no, it's, it's the worst gig you'll ever play in your life. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. So, but we couldn't. Pull out. It was the day of the thing, and we're not those types of people. So we're, like, we're going to do it. Right? Part of me would also be like, uh, I don't know if it's self-destructive or curious. I'd be like, how bad can it be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Famous last words, right? <laughs> so we get down to, and this is not the fault of the venue, but we get down to the motor in, right, mm. which definitely looked like something out of a horror film. Like it had the, you know. I can picture it now. Yeah, yeah. the demountable kiosk thing that you go into with the beaded <laughs> You know, you open the door, clang, and there's like a, a incandescent light. I was going to, you know, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, hello. There's no bell. I'm like, hello. There's nothing. And then <laughs> said hello again. I hear this. Yeah, I'm coming. And I'm like, oh, oh my god. Fucking hell. All right. Okay. <laughs> we'll cool. Start. And then uh, it was actually a funny moment because this this guy comes out and he's just like this really portly gentleman who looks largely unwashed <laughs> and sort of goes to his book and he's like looking through and he's looking down, not even looking as in the eye, and I'm like, it's under Nash, and he's like, didn't say anything. And then he sort of just peers up, and he's like, you guys must be from the big smoke. And I was like, yeah. Like, 
And Chris Chris said something like, is it that obvious? But the guy was like, no, your address is on here. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, we're, we're from the Cité. Um, so anyway, we get to our room and it wasn't, the, it was fine, uh, but it wasn't the kind of place you'd want to hang around before a gig. So yep. I texted the the guy who owned the place and I said, hey, we're, you know, we've arrived. And he texted back saying, uh, something it's it read the Mizzo will be there to pick you up in the courtesy van in half an hour. Like that sounds promising. Nice courtesy van. We, like I mean, for those of you listening, not from Australia, I'm not sure whether they have them overseas, but it's, you know, usually what pubs use to drive home people who have had too much, yeah, uh, to get their own way home. And so she ended up picking us up in the courtesy van. This courtesy van is f- filled with like people drunk out of their minds, stuff like that. So I, we get in. Well, they were drunk already. What yeah, no, they were coming home. Yeah, okay. they they'd been there all day. Yeah, right? uh, and Brilliant. so we you, g- going back up to the hotel. And we're dropping them off in various places or wherever. And we're like, okay, <laughs> it uh, doesn't bode well. Yeah, for the yeah. gig, does it? And so yeah. we we pull up to the car park, and there's no cars in the car park of this pub. So we're like, is everyone using the courtesy van? And she turns the lights off, and she's like, oh, we can't go in yet. And I'm like, okay, why not? She's like, oh, there's going to be a fight. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you see those two guys like talking to the security guards? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, yeah, they've had too much. They can't come in. Security will have to knock them out. I'm like, they'll have to knock them out. <laughs> She's like, yeah, we've got to wait here. So we were sitting in this courtesy van for like, I don't know, 15 minutes or something, waiting for these two guys to be knocked out by security. It's so funny that also this has happened enough that she knows that this is the way it has to go down, yeah. right? This oh, is not- <laughs> standard procedure. You know what I mean? We'll just wait here for 15 minutes, have a cigarette, lay these guys out, and then we'll take you in. Yeah. So we sat there for 15 minutes and I sort of appealed to her and I said, look, is there another way in to the, to the pub? And she kind of looked a little bit despondent. She was like, oh, then I'll have to take you onto the dance floor. And I'm like, that's fine. Like, don't mind. We just want to have a drink before we play. So she takes us around the side and these two big doors open up like a scout hall. Like, you know, they've got that bar. And I could hear music coming from the other side, but it didn't sound like music from a dance floor because it wasn't loud enough. We did open up onto the dance floor, but it happened to be uh, a really large dance floor with two tiny – uh, computer speakers as the speakers for the whole what? room. One guy with one tooth twerking on the dance floor and the DJ was playing Shania Twain. Fucking hell. And and so we were like, okay, so this is this is the gig, is it? Like this is what we're doing. By this time she's fled, right? Yeah. So we're on our own. And we make a beeline for the bar because we're like, we, we need a drink, right? So there's one guy with like one tooth on the dance floor, but was there other people in the hall? There were a couple of people milling around the bar, I remember, but no. It he was look- the only one in the room besides the DJ. Yeah, fuck. So it, was, it didn't bode well for it to, to be a, bo- a booming gig. Like- <laughs> None at all, right? And <laughs> but playing was through it- these tiny speakers, you can't believe- So Sorry, what time was this? Oh, I don't remember, but like, it was. It's like, was, was, it was it an, extra- an hour before we had to play? Or, okay, so yeah. well, it was like a thought maybe that people more people will show up. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, we thought maybe in the next hour there'll be two guys with one tooth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we get to the bar. And the three things I noticed right off the bat were there was a drink special for Goon Sunrise. Amazing. Not sure if you've ever heard of that. Uh, yeah, I used to drink them all the time at uni. Did you yeah, really? Yeah, in Bathurst. I didn't know they existed. Yeah. Is it just Goon Wine and uh, orange, orange Juice? juice yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was the drink special. Amazing. It was in a big container and you just tap it out. <laughs> 
The second thing was on the wall there were a bunch of like Polaroid style photos. Oh, so I think there's grenadine or something, the, the redness to go to make oh, the sunrise. Help. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a bunch of Polaroids on the wall, which I thought initially were like, you know, friends and family of the bar because you could see like – Employees in them. Oh my god! Please tell me these are people that are banned from the bar. Yeah, it was a list of people that are to be refused service, and all the photos were like people being dragged out by security, and someone's got a Polaroid of them. And I'm like, oh, quick before you knock him out, I got to get the camera. Yeah. And then next to that was uh, like a employee of the month style placard with this woman's face on it, and it said, "Ugliest bartender of the year award goes to so and so." Oh my. And I was blown away. I was like, how can you put that up? And before I could even think that, the the woman who it was just presented herself right in front of that award, like unaware, like seemingly unaware that there was this accolade to her physical <laughs> deficit standing right behind her. And she's just like, what can I get you guys? And I was like. You, can, we, can you name the bar? I'm so no, curious. No, no, I won't do that. I won't do that. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're going to have to go on a bar crawl of the South Coast. No, so. we, we don't. We don't have to do that. <laughs> just to find this one. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was the worst gig. And yeah, so we ended up playing. And, and to, to your point earlier, there were a few more people that came in, but only between five and ten. Yeah. And uh, Chris and I decided to sort of do back-to-back 15 minutes each rather than playing together. And at one point he came up to me and asked me, because he'd been talking to some guy side of stage, uh, who was yelling at him, and he came up and he said, oh, do you have any Shania Twain? <laughs> and I, at the time I was kind of busy and I was just like, no, I don't have any. And then I was like, wait, he's walking away. I'm like, did you just ask me any fucking Shania Twain? <laughs> and he's like, he gave me this look that was kind of like, just uh, I'll explain later. And it turned out that the guy had been requesting it and Chris said, no, he definitely doesn't have any. And he said, ask him or I'm going to fucking knock you out. Holy shit. <laughs> so Chris was like. I'll ask him, but I don't know for high hopes his Shania Twain collection. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, I can see why that would go into the book as uh, one of the horror stories of the DJ. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't our finest hour. <laughs> With, uh, I wanted to ask about when you were first getting a hang of um, the prosthetics, um, you know, what was that that process like just in terms of just – uh, learning how to—I mean, you—you're learning how to use prosthetic hands and um, feet, both at the same time. Um, mm. Was it a was it a frustrating process, or did you find that you were able to like look, just pick up things, re- learn things pretty quickly? Yeah. Um, so I didn't exactly do them both at the same time. I was walking fairly proficiently by the time I got the arms. Yeah. So I'd had one arm, and then I got another one. Um, but it was absolutely frustrating uh, using prosthetic arms and learning how to do things, but I excelled the most when I was left on my own. So, Because, yeah. okay. you know, the the tendency is that, you know, if I – let's say if, I'm, if I had a support worker or a carer around when I was at home and I accidentally dropped something, they would just go and pick it up for me. Mm. And I wouldn't even think about it. I'd just be like, oh, thanks, you know. But then when I was on my own – I had to learn how to do things. So, you know, if it was picking up a pen from the floor, I le- had to learn the best way to do that. And it's not always the way that you always think to do something. Mm. Like for instance, I remember I was a smoker back then and uh, I couldn't use those big lighters with a 
with a hook because it's got that weird rotary knob and it just wasn't it wasn't working very well. So I started using my toaster, like when no one was around, I just put the toaster and put my cigarette in. And then my toaster broke. Um, and then not from that as well. It was just a shit toaster. And um, and then I, I, I ra- uh, wrapped up like an A4 sheet of paper and I put it under the grill in, uh, in my oven. I set fire to it. And then I would run outside, light my cigarette and stamp out the paper. And But you try, it's trial and error, I'm just right? trying different yeah. shit, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't like that either because the, even the toaster and the the A4 paper aren't a transferable skill. There's something that, you know, I can't do that if I'm out in the city walking around, right? Yep. I could try. Um, and so I was constantly searching for something that was more of a mobile solution to that problem. And one of the days that I was actually lighting it with this um, paper and stamping it out, I would pass my barbecue. And I noticed those really large matches that you light barbecues with. Yep. And I was like, oh, like I can do that. Hey, yeah. And okay. so I sat yeah. there for the rest of the afternoon just learning how to strike a match mm. um, in a, probably a very unsafe environment. But mm. at the end of it, I got really proficient at striking matches. And then I got good enough that I could even use the small ones with hooks, with, which is quite meticulous. You know, you have to be with hooks to pick one out. Yeah. And then I used to just catch, carry matches everywhere because it's, you know, sometimes the, the simplest solution is the easiest. Well, I see you've got a vape now. That must make things easier when you don't have to light things at all. Yeah, it is. And I've been smoking these for, what, like four years now, like quite a while, Mm. and I was able to quit smoking immediately. I smoke a pack a day, sometimes more before that. So they've been really good. I think with with all the stuff you're talking about, it just just, uh, reminds you that, like, necessity is a mother of all invention, right? I mean, not only in terms of you um, briefing this guy on how to redesign a guitar, but Mm. also um, just in terms of you um, figuring out how to do just, like, all these little tasks. Yeah, I agree. I'd... If, if someone was uh, around me and getting me to do like simple tasks just to prove that I was learning rather than when I'm on my own and there's just something that I actually want to get done, I'd find yeah. that that's the point where I'm actually more driven to suddenly. Yes. To, it's, to- and it's also a far better motivator because it's not like sitting there with an occupational therapist saying like, move this block from left to right. And you're like, okay, maybe I can do that after a while. Yeah. But then I've just moved a block from left to right. Yes. Score. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're doing something that's practical in your own life and you're increasing your independence by learning something, even as arbitrary or specific as it might be, you're, you're getting progress through it and you're becoming more independent. So it's a better motivator. I used to think the same thing when I was, I learned to play guitar when I was a teenager was, um, I wouldn't learn chords or scales. I would learn songs. Mm. So it would just be like, you know, I was big into Nirvana when I was a kid. I was like, learn how to play a Nirvana song because they're quite easy to play. Yeah. But then once I learned how to play three songs, I start to see links and I'm like, oh, he's used the same chord here. Oh, that must be that. That must yeah, be that. Okay. And at the end of each song, I know how to play a song. It's far more motivating than I could do, you know, six chords in a row but not play anything. Yeah. Yeah. What are what are the things did you um, find that that were that were part of this learning process? Just in terms of uh, things where you 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 had to find your own way to approach it, like like with the the lighting of cigarettes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there are so many, but uh, the <clears throat> example that I typically use was was um, learning to walk up a step from the f- for the first time. Yeah. And that was uh, because I'd learned how to walk by that point, but I was only walking on flat ground. Yeah. And uh, and then when I tried to step up a curb for the first time, I tried the way that I'd always known how, which is just facing it and putting my foot up in front of me. Uh, and, it, you know, you try and try to no avail. You start to 
you know, think of those people who say persistence is the key, which is kind of bullshit a lot of the time. You know, sometimes you just have to think of a different way around a problem. Yeah. And at that point I realized that I didn't have ankle movement and so if I used my hip instead, I could get up a curb easier. And so turning my body 90 degrees, I was just able to get up steps yep. without any problem. And the the salient realization there wasn't as much that I could now get up steps. It was that I had to approach every problem from a different angle at that point. And, you know, vocationally as well, it's been I've, I've used it. I mean, the whole idea of starting a nightclub to become a DJ, it identifies a bunch of false assumptions mm. such that if you want to become a DJ, you have to, you know, buy DJ equipment, you have to learn how to DJ, you have to invest in annoying clothes, <laughs> you have to make mixtapes and have, you know, contacts with people and and just stick it out playing shit venues for $2. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes there's a different way to do anything. True. Well, you're now uh, a motivational speaker? No. No? I'm a speaker. I'm not a motivational speaker. Okay. So you have what's, to get up before 8 in the morning to be a motivational <laughs> speaker. I'm a demotivational speaker. You so don't you, listen to me so, for an hour, you're like, fuck. <laughs> it's over. I've got it's so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're a speaker. Um, yeah. How did you get into that? What was the, the, the path that led you into that? So I had been asked to do some talks quite early on. When I say early on, maybe I'd say eight years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And I just I sort of did them – not reluctantly, but I didn't know what I was doing. Hmm. Uh, and it was very much that kind of, hey, look at this disabled guy talk, which I think is largely shit. Yes. Um, and I didn't want to be that kind of speaker. I wanted to be able to talk about things that were actually useful to people, uh, ideas that they can draw on themselves because I think it's not good enough to really just look at someone and be like, oh, he's been through some horrible stuff, so what am I complaining about? Yeah. I fucking hate that concept. Um, and so I got to work, you know, thinking about some ideas that would be transferable to other people that could be, you know, adaptable. And, uh, you know, one of the most salient ones, I guess, is the, the adaptability, um, using adversity to your advantage, I guess, which is, I think what I do a lot of the time is I've developed the skill of being able to reframe negative events to being positive. And I think, we're awash with a lot of people that uh, complain a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so you need a kind of antidote to that because it's very seductive for people to fall into, you know, that you know, victim nature. I and think so. I think that- there's, I think there's a purpose and need for somebody who is the opposite to that, and who can a recognize that horrible shit does happen. Yeah. But b work out a way that you can actually use it to your advantage. There are a lot of people, I think, that complain a lot and um, they, they don't fully appreciate just how good they've got things, right? Mm-hmm. I, I certainly um, was guilty of that, I think, at, at one stage. I, I felt like when I went to prison, I lost I felt like I lost everything and it wasn't until I felt like that. I was like, actually, I still have <laughs> a lot um, yeah. to be very grateful for. Yeah. Um, so what, what – Actually, can I just interject for one second <laughs> yeah. and just say uh, – I do like complaining, but only about really trivial shit. Right? So if you know me for more than a couple of weeks, that one thing that you'll say about me is constant whining is what you experience. Right? But what and are you whining about? I'm, well, do you remember when I came in here and I said fucking two-ply tissues, right? <laughs> shit yes. like that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, she'll tell you stories for days on end. So I'm constantly complaining about things all the time. But only ever really small things like how long I've been on hold for or, 
you know, how bad the pizza is at this place or something like that. I think it's really healthy to have that kind of relationship with your life where you're able to shit can most of it. Um, and that's what I was saying to you about, like, I could never live in a place that I 100% liked every aspect of it. I need to hate 20% of it. And yeah, for yeah. me, the inner West is perfect for that because it's very convenient. There's great food. It's close to the city. But the fucking hipsters piss me off, man. I, can't. <laughs> I was about to say. They're just, yeah. Uh, far, yeah. Yes. But that, that's it's perfect in that way. You know? yep. If yep. they yep. weren't there... What would I do? You'd you, you drive you insane. What would I do? It's <laughs> part of my identity. It's hating me. Yeah, you'd have to yeah. move. <laughs> when you do these these speaking opportunities, I mean, do you find um, that there are people that message you or come up to you um, afterwards that just say like that, that your message has really struck a chord with them? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, um, sometimes that can be misinterpreted, mm. I think, uh, along the lines of what we discussed before of that kind of – you know, I don't like. I didn't know what I was complaining about until, which which the reason I don't like that is because, well, for starters, it kind of makes it seem like I've got this horrible life, and what are they complaining about? I definitely do not have a horrible life. Mm. I feel like I'm the luckiest man on the planet. Uh, I'm really fortunate, and I have a great life. Secondly, uh, it's a really bad idea for them because. You know that expression, there's always someone worse off than yourself. There's always someone better off than you as well. Totally. And, and that should cancel out that logic if you're of that persuasion. <laughs> and thirdly, uh, it's a great tool to never actually sort your own problems out, mm. you know, by thinking, oh, well, there are people worse off than I am. So I'll just sweep that under the carpet for another year. See how that goes. I guess I didn't – I'm the kind of person that does think, oh, there's someone worse off than me, but I don't – I, I didn't yeah. think because – Also Jeff Bezos, <laughs> so fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that thought doesn't come to my mind because I remember being on this transport truck to go to prison and the guy that I was talking to said he was looking at about 20 years. And in my yeah. head I was thinking I'm probably looking at a couple of years. Mm. And instantly I was feeling better about myself because I was like, yeah. fuck, well, at least it's not that bad, yeah. right? And so uh, that instantly made me feel – Better, even though I was on a truck on my way to prison, um, yeah. but I wasn't also thinking there's some guys not in prison. Yeah, <laughs> so you're you're sort of you know uh, oscillating between like narrow framing and and broad framing in that way, where mm. you're kind of like, you know, your your idea was everybody that's on this bus, I'm doing okay. Yeah, that's a narrow framing of the thing. But on the broad framing, everyone on that ba- that bus is in fucking prison. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? So yeah. it's like. You, you can select the way that you look at something. Yes. And I think when you've got an underlying issue or something that it could be a psychological problem or, or in a relationship or work, it doesn't help you to brush it under the carpet. You know, you, you need to give it as much credence as you do anything else in your life. And it's important to note that nobody cares about your life as much as you do. True. You know? And so those things have to be addressed. I wanted to ask you because, uh, I mean, there are times when um, – I have um, this, I guess, imposter syndrome or I have this feeling of self-loathing, which I get past because uh, it's only very temporary. But um, there are times when you just uh, – you have moments where you're like, don't even – you're like, everything I'm saying is bullshit or I don't I don't believe my own thoughts. That, mm. do, do you ever go through any of those kind of – All the time. Yeah. Hey, sitting here with you right now, <laughs> why the fuck am I talking to you? It's – no, no. I, I genuinely have imposter syndrome with everything in my – I mean, take it from like – First of all, I'm alive. Yes. Um, secondly, which is some sort of an imposter considering what I've been through. Uh, secondly, you know, I went on to, you know, run a nightclub as a DJ. 
not being able to DJ at the beginning. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like, I get invited to speak at conferences with, you know, presidents of companies mm. to corporate audience. What, what am I talking about? What are you talking about? So I constantly have imp- imposter syndrome, mm. but I've actually learned to embrace it. And the reason is uh, I would rather be an imposter than an expert because e- experts don't have anything to learn. <clears throat> An imposter always has things to learn from new people. So I get the opportunity to come and speak to you on this podcast, which I might see myself as a bit of an imposter on, but I get to learn something from you. If I go to a conference and speak at a conference and I meet interesting people and I broaden my social horizons, uh, I become a richer person for that experience. So I just embrace it now. I, there's comics that I really respect to say, but if, if, you, if you don't feel that imposter syndrome all the time, then you're, you you shit or you you know mm. you, you're no good because you're, you're meant to feel that yeah. because that keeps pushing you forward. Yeah, that's interesting as well. Yeah, I certainly felt that when I did TED Talk in 2019. Yeah, it's like you know five thousand people and recorded. And you're like crazy, you, right? You and then it went you on. You hear what I got to say? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then it went on YouTube and got millions of views. Yeah. Right. And you, yeah, you'd you'd feel that again, right? Yeah. You, you felt it when you had five thousand people, but then you're also when you're getting millions of views and people going, "Wow!" And you're like, Fuck. "Yeah." And that, that's the closest I ever got to stand up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the only similarity was that I was standing up. That was it. Which could have gone either way with me. Yeah. True. I could have done it in a wheelchair. I don't actually <laughs> use a wheelchair. I wanted to ask you about. Um, sexuality with disability because mm. um, it's one topic that's it's a, a whole bunch of up-and-coming uh, amazing stand-up comedians that have disabilities um, that, that talk about sexuality and I think it's um, something which is an important topic which um, I think um, people have a lot of misunderstanding or just don't know anything about. Mm. Um, what, what kind of – things do you go through when you're, you're obviously a bloke in your 20s to 30s, mm. um, you still have all those raging hormones, right? Mm. Um, but um, is there – does that um, – has that created additional challenges just with not only with your body but also just how you feel about yourself sexually? Yeah, so initially it did. And mm. when I say initially, I mean when I first got out of hospital. So mm. I had a lot of reservations about – my updated value on the sexual marketplace, let's yes. call it. Yeah. Uh, and they were quashed within three months uh, because I ended up uh, meeting someone. Awesome. That just really liked me for, you know, not the hook. I don't know. Maybe she did like the hooks. I never really asked. <laughs> maybe she was an amputee uh, devotee. <laughs> I never really got to the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did get into a relationship with someone when I was like a few months out of, of hospital Mm. And um, I think I realized at the time that, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that I'm a man because women are, are far more charitable when it comes to things that they find attractive. Mm. And uh, aesthetics can be lower on the list than it would for men, I would think, in most circumstances. That's but interesting. notwithstanding, mm. uh, you know, this girl was attracted, I guess, to my personality, my defiance and charisma to an extent. And I realized that, it was something that you know, I, I would need to completely shift the context and focus of what value I added to people, right? Yeah. And, and it, again, it, it harks back to that focus on what you do have, not what you've lost. Yep. You know, because then you can control the environment more and you can be attractive to people. Yep. Since then, I've never had a problem with women, on the contrary. 
Awesome. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and you still got your dick, right? Still got my yeah. Everything works. <laughs> yeah, I'm just down four limbs. Yeah, which some people like. You yeah. know what I mean? That's, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, so uh, did that relationship? That relationship didn't continue. That was no, just, no. That yeah. was only a couple of months or something like that. But it was one of those things where you you need to know it can happen. Yep. And then it's your responsibility to make it happen that, more. That must yeah. have felt really cool that that happened only after a few months, yeah, right? Yeah, it was be like, quite lucky. You know, this is not the end. We're, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> we're, right. We're going to keep on going, baby. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Have you ever used dating apps? Yeah, I have. Um, not much mm. because the last relationship I was in uh, was just over five years <coughs> and that ended in 2020. Mm. So dating apps weren't I, – I I'm not sure when – it was like 2014. I think I used it a bit around 2014 or so. Apparently it's got far more advanced now mm. and I've been in two long-term relationships since it's yep. gotten advanced, so I yep. haven't used it since then yet. I, do you I, use them? I do use them and, uh, I mean, I I, I, uh, I guess this is semi-related. I, I uh, have, I guess, a social disability. I have to mention to them that I, I've been to prison because like, otherwise it could be quite oh, – yeah. not everyone – uh, is on board with that, yeah. you know. Oh, you some- had some great jokes about that. Uh, was it the uh, my favorite one? Was the the convictions joke? Uh, looking for my pa- uh, <laughs> yeah. girls, girls looking for their partner in crime, and then yeah, uh, yeah some other girls are looking for a guy with strong convictions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I found because uh, I mean there was a there was a time when I was a drug dealer um, when. I would go on many dates with a girl before I mentioned that. And then like at that point they're already liking me and so it felt quite manipulative. Right, Um, okay. That's like, you know, you have a kid and you don't tell them you got a kid. Yeah, exactly. So what I found was I'd just try and be upfront about that, that that I've been to prison and that's just part of of my story. But do do you Uh, feel that that makes you look like a bit of a compulsive kind of first date and you're like, by the way, I'm just (laughs) Well, I just – Just got out actually. (laughs) I usually mention it on a dating app like pretty early in the conversation. Okay, yeah. um, but you don't put it in your profile. I think at one stage I did. I think I might have taken it out now because I felt like um, it's let it, it, it maybe I, I didn't want to scare them off the first second. I was like, I, maybe if I can chat to them and win them over my personality for yeah. a second and then mention it, that's yeah, not yeah. so manipulative. But mm. if, it, if it's it literally just mentioned in the profile, like, oh yeah, a comedian and I went to prison. Yeah, um, but you've got a public profile now, so they would be able to find that out with oh, Google. Absolutely, if they just Google like, and I also, um, uh, I mean, if I talk about comedy, I go, I do comedy about prison, so I mention it pretty quickly. But yes, yeah. I, I'm very Googleable. Mm. But uh, I also felt like that um, is something that, uh, yeah, that you, you, there are people. I think if you're talking about like things like that, or if you've got a kid, or if you've got a disability, that um, it's easier just to have that conversation straight up. Because if if, if someone's not into that, totally fine. Mm. But you don't want to waste you don't want to waste your own time or theirs. Interesting. Um, so I often get that people don't didn't realize I have no legs mm. or I've lost my legs because I can walk fairly proficiently. Yeah. And I think also that the hooks uh, sort of take the eye a bit more yep. and people don't think about the legs. Yeah. And I've been with people before who didn't know I didn't have legs, mm. or, you know. Uh, but I, it's not that I was holding it, like <laughs> trying to hide it. Yeah. I just forgot to tell him. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair, right? It's part of your life. You don't think you need to mention yeah. it every second. Yeah, well, every you just second. get, I mean, I'm so used to the physiology of my body that I don't, 
ever feel the need to like if anyone asks, I'm tell them. But. And what has there been a situation with a girl where they were totally fine with like hooks for hands, but when they found out that you also had prosthetic legs, that 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 weirded them out? No, no, no that's never been a problem. But, okay. but I've had situations where girls have been like, "Oh, I didn't like for the first. Did, did you know or not?" Sorry for the listeners of my girlfriends in the room. Oh, there you go. There so you she go. didn't know. Well, we weren't together then. Yeah. yeah. I saw you walking up the stairs out of Club 77 and I thought, that guy's really fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and then someone had to tell me. Yeah. yeah. Which could have been true at the same time. Yeah. Um, but holy shit! So you knew him, um, but the the movement was um, so was it was non obvious because yeah, yeah because yeah. I mean if I like if you didn't know I'd lost my legs and I mm. walked in here, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't think about it. No, um, because I walk okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think people who like if I met someone in a bar or something like that, and we just had a few drinks and we could do that a couple of times, then I'd have to be like, oh yeah, and you know I had to get my leg fixed, and they'd be like, well, what like. What are you talking about? <laughs> just um, got a new one and, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and in terms of just like the the you learning the mechanics of how you, to move your body with all things, I guess it, the first time, the first couple of times you had sex, you just had to learn how to, to yeah. do that. Yeah, right? you, you work out whether it's easier to have them on or off. And the answer to that is it, there is no answer. <laughs> it kind of depends on what you're doing exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, but obviously, like, they're not the most comfortable things mm. uh, even for me to sleep in. So I don't typically sleep with my prosthetics on. Yeah. Uh, just because they're made of carbon fiber and metal. And that's, of course. Yeah. And so you can imagine it's often not as comfortable for the person I'm laying with either. Totally. Yeah. So there's a balance between that kind of stuff and, yeah. I mean, it's cool, it's, it's cool to just uh, – you got to go through that learning process as part of life, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> basically, uh, no, I, I really love those conversations because um, you know it's I, I've got a nephew who's um, paraplegic, and mm. um, you know the, the, I think the, the the talks about you know talking about sexuality um, for anyone um, is is such an important part because we're all sexual beings, you mm. know. Yeah. Um, now that's cool. Um, I know that your book is called Hook, Line, and Sinner. Mm. I was interested <laughs> about the, the sinning. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I think it's it's a cheeky title. I didn't come up with the title, by the way. My <laughs> brother-in-law did. It's a brilliant title, though. But um, uh, it's an unexpected memoir. It's an un- unexpected trajectory, which is what I think I t- touched on before yep. because most of the time when you read about someone who's gone through a disability, they either become, you know, I don't know, the, the poster child for some sporting thing, they're a Paralympian or they're uh, a you-can-do-anything or look-at-me-I-have-a-disability type person, uh, which is fine. They have their place. You don't often hear about uh, disabled people running nightclubs and taking LSD. Yeah, um, totally. And so there are parts of that, I think, which play into the title a little bit. But just, you just described, like, to me, a fun person. Yeah. yeah thank you. <laughs> We've only known each other for an hour. I've won you over already. <laughs> <laughs> yes. DJ, acid, tick, tick. I'd yeah. be like, when are we hanging out? <laughs> yeah. I also like pizza. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, not, not dog pizza. <laughs> well, it was still human-grade food. I think you could give it a try. Hey, what's but- your favorite pizza in Sydney? Um, what is my favorite pizza now that my store does it exist? Uh, I mean, I think Bella Bruda in Newtown. It's a good one, yeah. Um, probably, probably number one. 
So um, here's something that you might not know about me, or you definitely wouldn't. For a period, a few years ago, I used to be a food critic. Wow, right? that's cool. Uh, I, actually, I shouldn't call it a food critic, just a, a writer. Um, but I used to review restaurants, uh, first for a, a rag called City Hub and then just on my own blog. And one of the questions I always used to ask people when we're in an interview type situation was if the world was ending tomorrow, what would your last meal be? Mm. Can you answer that for me? But can you answer two versions of it? One, what would be your actual last meal? And you can, you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere you've been, or it might be something your grandmother cooked when she was, when you were younger, or it could be just a local place. But then in the second one, can you give me your last prison meal? Oh, wow. Um, okay. Last meal on earth. Don't feel um, shy about the microphone as I'll speak right into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, podcast host. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think just like I, I'm not a fancy guy. I think I would just go a really greasy pepperoni pizza with like just shitloads of cheese and shitloads of pepperoni. Really like pepperoni, yeah, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, <laughs> okay. Well, if you had to have a pepperoni pizza anywhere, where would it be as your last meal? Oh, wow. If only my restaurant was still open. Um, where's – you know, oh, uh, there's a place uh, called Epic Pizza. Mm-hmm. They, they, they go they these enormous pizzas. Do they used to be um, on Crown Street? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. There might be another one. Uh, that, I'll maybe go – they're all um, Via Napoli uh, oh, Via is Napoli, another one. Yeah. They, they've got these ones that are like a one meter long. I would just yeah. get like the most absurdly long yeah. pizza and so just it's, eat. It's, it's quantity over quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also a good restaurant, but I yeah, think yeah. I, I would just want to eat until I'm full and just feel like greasy and fat and just be like, come on, meteor. Like, yeah. like, okay, cool. <laughs> let's end it. In terms of prison, are we talking like I'm on death row and I can order anything or am I like, has it no, got to no, be no. a prison action? Of, of, of the, the ones that you had, yeah. Of everything you've eaten in prison, what would be the the oh. pick if meteor was coming? Um. You know, I think just because of the amount of good times I had with it, on Sundays what we would do is guys would chip in and you could get powdered eggs on the mm-hmm. buy-up um, that we got every week and cans of um, – What does on the buy-up mean? Sorry? So um, buy-up is like every week you, um, you can, there's a grocery list of things mm-hmm. you can get like chips and chocolate and soft drink and noodles and all kinds of yeah. stuff and you can only, only buy that – if you have loved ones putting money into your account or otherwise sometimes you can work a job in prison for a little bit of money or otherwise you get paid about $17 a week just for being a prison inmate Um, just because otherwise it turns into the haves and the have-nots and that creates friction. So if I I had – I was lucky enough my my family were putting money into my account and then you can buy $100 worth of groceries a week. So I was getting like packets of chips and soft drink and like – and um, Migorang and all kinds of stuff. So you're in your cell for 18 hours a day. So mm. you, you, it's good to um, – and, and the food, while I thought it was fine, the servings aren't very big. So right. And you get served dinner at like 2 p.m. So, what? you know, yeah, because uh, the, the kitchens are run by the inmates yeah. and they have to get locked away, right? Okay. So dinner at two p.m. I'd, so you have breakfast at eight a.m. or yeah. seven forty-five. I was having at Long Bay. I was having lunch at um, I think it was like ten twenty, and then uh, one forty-five. You're back in your cell uh, and your dinner's there waiting for you for right. like two p.m. So you'd eat it while it's still hot because you don't really have the heating system. So 
you you'd eat that, and then by six pm, um, you're watching the news, and it's you're hungry again. So yeah, you need to right. so you really need to have extra food. And that's where that buy up thing comes. That's in. when the buy up yeah. comes in handy. Um, but guys also use it for gambling. You know, you'd you'd bet someone a five dollar can of tuna or mm. something like that. So um, it was used as prison currency as well. Yeah. But um, my favorite activity, or one of the favorite, my favorite things was on Sundays. Guys would all chip in. There'd be a whole bunch of guys, and some guys would get cans of spam. Some mm-hmm. guys would get the powdered eggs, and um, various other bits and pieces. And we we had like a hot plate out in the in the yard, mm. and then we'd cook up these uh, spam and egg sandwiches. And I'd have a nice coffee, and I'd just have it was like it was like having like a bacon egg roll, but yeah. just it was like you know eight or ten guys all working mm. together, and someone would be slicing slicing the spam while someone made the mm. egg mixture. And then we'd all sit there and someone would bring out barbecue sauce mm. and then we're all sitting there and then guys who like didn't chip in because they don't have anything, we'd, you know, at the end we'd be like talking, oh, should we give Dave a sandwich? You know, he's like just mm. trying to be magnanimous to yeah. a few extra people. But it was just, it, there's re- it just made you have this sense of like normality. Right. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, how much of it was the actual meal and how much of it was that? It did taste behavior. really good. Yeah. Um, it, I, I must admit, the first time I bought a can of spam, I didn't realize that you need to cook it. I just ate it out of the tin. I was like, "This tastes yeah. like shit." And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, what have I done? What a waste of money!" Yeah. But then uh, they're like, "No, you idiot! You got to cook it on a hot plate." Right. And so it's actually, I mean, obviously my bar for things of enjoying taste had gone down a fair bit, but. Hmm. Um, yeah, powdered eggs and and spam on a toasted um, a piece of white bread. Uh, just sitting there with a couple of fellas just felt like heaven to me. I always think that context can make food taste better. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So with uh, I used to because I was so bored in prison. I wrote prison meal reviews of all yeah. my lunches and dinners, mm. and I always added the context of what was going on that day because mm. um, yeah, you're right. If yeah. if you're like. Having a really good day, the food's going to taste way better. Yeah. If you're like, oh, I saw Paul get stabbed. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I should not. <laughs> I wasn't you're ready like, for that. You know, yeah. this this uh, sandwich is getting a lower score. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a fantastic day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of the reviews that I do on stage, uh, which is exactly this, was mm. um, I say it was a corned beef and salad sandwich. This was like my 10th day. Mm. Corned beef and salad sandwich. Um, with cheese and honey mustard. And then I read out this review on stage and I say, today my fiancé told me that she's leaving me and that she's rehomed my dogs. This has affected my enjoyment of the sandwich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, shit, <yeah. laughs> And then I go 4.2 out of 10, right? And so I, I say, well. I'm I mean, sorry. Point two? Yeah. Where'd that come from? Where are you point two Well, from? I'm scoring every day. Like, you know, sometimes it was a 3.7, sometimes it was a 4.2. Yeah. It was uh, okay. I just is a gut feel. Um, <laughs> so and then I point out, look, a 4.2, when you've just told it that your fiancé is leaving you and that she's rehomed your dogs, it's, it's still pretty good. I think that shows just how good the sandwich was. It's interesting. Maybe Yelp should add that as a feature. <laughs> so when you're reviewing the restaurant, you know, because often I find when you look at reviews of places – you know, all the bad ones always start out with something like, you know, my mother-in-law picked this restaurant for us or something like that. And then yeah. the service turned out to be horrible. Was it the restaurant or was yeah. it the company? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can almost piece together. Um, <laughs> my wife told me that she's having an affair during this yeah, during, our, right. yeah, during yeah. our spaghetti dinner. Yeah. The spaghetti, <laughs> by the way, was shit. <laughs> Never coming back. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you're so right. Yeah. They and they take it out on the poor restaurant. Yeah, and actually, there's a thing. There's a thing that I do. I often talk about, uh, which harks back a little to the managing of expectations thing, which is whenever whenever I stay at a hotel or an Airbnb, right before I get there, I read the bad reviews about it mm. because then, if it is bad. You're kind of primed, and and you expect it. Mm. But if it's great, you've just manufactured a great experience for yourself because you're like, well, what was Jane thirty four talking about? I think this room's fucking excellent. Yep. Yeah. I, I find most of the time when there's a negative review, you can read into it that it, like it. You it do was, whatever you it, want it, with it. It's it more. Yeah. Most of the time, it's more the person. You can read that it's more was the person than the actual venue. Yeah. Um, but but you I can also make it look however you want. Nothing has perfect reviews. No. Like, you know, like if you're going through it. You know, let's say you and your partner are working out like, oh, where are we going to stay in Bali or something like that, right? And you got this one's got 4.9. Like, oh, let's read the shittest reviews. You read that one, you're like, oh, we're not staying there. What are you going to stay at the 4.6? It's got more. <laughs> right? Trust me. I, I only ever, that's so true. Whenever I read the reviews, I only read the bad ones. Yeah. Just out of curiosity. Of course, I don't. Of course. You want to know what's wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I never read the, the ones, the five star ones. So, yeah, read. Next time you stay at a hotel, just before you walk in the door, Read the really bad reviews and just see the effect that it has on your experience. Staying <laughs> what What was the driving force behind the book? Was this did someone suggest this to you, or was this something that you felt was burning inside you? You had a story you wanted to write. I really like writing. As yep. I said, I'd done yep. that sort of food writing before, and it's it's another creative outlet mm. again, and uh, it's something that I've always enjoyed doing. I've done a few articles for online magazines and and publications and stuff, and. <laughs> I did think that some sort of biography in some way could transmit the ideas that I was talking about before that could be a benefit to other people yep. in some way. However, I'm only 40, so it's not exactly memoir uh, area. Yep. Uh, so I actually prefer to relate to it as a semiography um, such that I hope this isn't the last you hear from me. Yes. Um, wow. But it, it does, you know, document – part of my life that I learned a lot of lessons that I think people can gain something from as well. Um, but that's, that's pretty much it. And I sort of, I took my time writing it because I didn't have a deal until about a year ago. Yep. I had a couple of offers here and there. Um, but I wanted to have more of it together before a lot of the time when you write nonfiction, you don't have to have the whole thing finished before you get a deal. I, I'm in that boat right now. Yeah. So they'll just look at your TikTok following and be like, yeah, we could probably sell a book, which yep. is fine. But you got to know whether it's going to be good. Yes. And so I spent uh, quite a bit of time in 2019. I, I'd taken many notes over the years uh, and written, but not huge long form stuff. And so I took about four or five months in 2019. I went over to France and I just, that was my only job, was just to sit at cafes with a little iPad and just write. And I think I wrote. 50 or 60,000 words, and it came together in a sense where I at least saw that it, it could be something. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this is this could be something. And then uh, I just waited for the right person or the right publisher to come along. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, uh, I got a message from Justin Ratcliffe, who was a publisher at Penguin up until recently. And uh, I'd, I'd been approached by a couple of publishers, but they were – Kind of like, hey, saw your TED talk. Have you thought about writing a book? Which is, you know, I understand that. Yeah. But uh, he also had been to Starfuckers. Yeah, okay. So he, he got a bit yeah. about the background. He yeah. was like, yeah, I used to come to 77. And I, I've seen you DJ before. 
So I'm like, all right, immediately this guy knows a little bit more about what I would be writing about. It makes a big than, difference when someone yeah. gets it, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're not going to be, when I start talking about like nightclubs and all this nefarious kind of stuff, they're not going to be like, whoa, you know, we wanted the, the, the uh, what do you call it? This, sort of like this wasn't our Cookie vision. cutter tale of the dis- disabled guy. That, yeah. um, so I knew that he was kind of like that. So I agreed to meet with him and, and he was a really great guy, uh, lived local to me and everything. And so I just decided to go with it for, with Penguin. So. And so the book's coming out. Um, well, by the time this is published, it'll be uh, right before the book. Yeah, comes it just out, came so. out today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, no, it's it's scheduled, I think, for August 29th. Great. All right. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'll be in the states before that. We get back a week before, so I'm going to be running around and signing books with my hook. Yes, awesome. And and doing some kind of little press tour, hopefully. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. which this will be a part of. Awesome. <laughs> Make it look well, like I'm doing it now. By by then, who knows? Yeah. The, the the listenership of shit's gone sideways. That's true. And and you know what else? I'm going to look much fatter by then because we're going to the United States for five weeks. Fantastic for some work stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to be eating like Texas barbecue and burgers in New York. And so I'm going to come back about five or six kilos heavier than now. So this is the perfect uh, podcast because I still don't look. Like a <laughs> Well, I'm not even sure if I'll ever get allowed back into America, so I'll have to live vicariously through you, mate. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> we'll smuggle you in or something. Like uh, so what else? So, so the book will be coming out imminently, and then uh, like, what else is on the cards for you? You had talked about you you get sucked into these um, these, these um, obsessions or these hobbies that you you go through. What what, what are you what are you into at the moment? Um, that's a good question. I do a lot of video stuff. Now yep. as well, uh, something I've, that I got into. Yep. Uh, so I do a little bit of that. Yep. Um, I'm also quite busy with speaking now, uh, and that's taking up a lot of my time as well as content stuff. So that's I'm doing, cool. I'm doing South by Southwest this year. Oh, amazing! So I was going to say, with, with the speaking stuff, is that is that a is that a full fledged career? Is that is that right viable? now? It's my only sustaining career. Yeah, Great. that's right. Yeah, Great. because the DJing isn't. That <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so right now it's uh, speaking stuff. And hopefully some book royalties very shortly. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, someone's going to have to buy it for that to happen. So. <laughs> I think well. it, there'll be three people that read my book and they'll listen to it on Audible. Uh, <laughs> and one of them is my mother. So, <laughs> Yeah, so sorry. So go ahead. Yes. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, so doing South by Southwest this year, which I'm, I guess, the most excited about, apart from engagements I have in the US, uh, looking to do some more stuff over there as well. But South by Southwest will be a fun one. This is the first time they've come out of Austin and are doing it in Sydney. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. That's yeah. very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. So it's a week-long conference and it's in October. I think it's mid-October. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be it, – it'll be like TED on steroids or something like that. Amazing. I guess. So how many people are you going to be talking in front of? Do they tell I don't know, actually. I, I don't know. Um I'll do it in front of five people. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're giving me flashbacks to my uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival run recently. <laughs> but you did well with that, right? You got the newcomer uh, I, I, award, I did, was it? I did go well. Yes, yeah, thank congrats. you. I got nominated for it. Um, yeah. But uh, my first night there, I did the show to like – I had five tickets sold and I was like mentally preparing myself to do the show to five people and then like 17 showed up on the door. So I had like – it's a small room, so it was like a proper crowd and I had yeah. such a hot show and I'm like – 
this is, I was like, I'm a golden god. This is going to be like what it's like every night. And the next night I had four sold. I'm like, that's fine. Here's people yeah, show yeah. up on the door. <laughs> and then no one else showed up. And yeah. it was just four people. And I had to do an hour of comedy to four people. And luckily they were fully into it. But I ate my head off. What was like, the venue? Uh, it was a cocktail bar called the Bard's Apothecary mm. in um, in Melbourne CBD, and they were they were amazing to me. They were so supportive, and it was like the perfect room for me because it was just, it felt like a prison, a cell. Mm. It was like just this small little brick dungeon. Yeah. Um. And so I plugged away there at ten forty at night every night, and slowly. I mean, I had the advantage on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays that I was the only show on at that time. Mm. So people would like get pissed and they'd look through the guide and be like, "Oh, there's only one show on. It's some guy talking about." Prison, do you want to go to that? And people be like, Yeah, actually, that sounds exactly like what we're yeah, gonna do when we're blow. half cut, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we're gonna go to a, a quite a few comedy clubs in America. I've been looking up going Mothership in uh, Austin, yep, Joe Rogan's, yep. yeah, yeah, uh, Seller, obviously, in New York, as well as probably a couple of others, and I think Comedy Store in LA. But what I found out was that none of my favorite comics are going to be playing anytime that I'm over there. That's and okay, by Getsy, who I really wanted to see, is actually playing in, in Sydney. While we're gone. Yeah, wow. Uh, well, look, I mean, sometimes y- you go to these clubs and you just someone you've never heard of yeah. makes you laugh harder than you've ever heard in your life. Yeah. You, like, you know, that's that's the amazing thing about comedy. Is- I'm hoping there's some walk-ins because I think I remember like nine years ago I was at the cellar and uh, Patton Oswalt did a, did a walk-in. They get that at the Which cellar is, yeah, all the yeah. time, right? Um, I remember there was some famous story from uh, a few years ago where – um, they had like Dave Chappelle, Aziz Ansari, Jerry Seinfeld, Amy Schumer all did drop-ins on the one night and <laughs> and Chappelle got up and goes, you just saw a billion dollars worth of comedy for 25, yeah, yeah, yeah. For 25 bucks and a two-drink minimum. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that's really cool. I mean, we have the Australian version of that where we have mm. drop-ins, but it's like it's Susie, Dave Hughes, yeah. you know? Where uh, do you play around Sydney usually? Uh, all, all over. So, uh, I mean, the, the best one to do is the comedy store at the Entertainment Quarter, yeah. which I, I feel very fortunate to have been able to do already. Oh, um, How big is that room? I think it fits like 300 odd. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, and, and that room, there's so much interesting social psychology to comedy that when people go to the comedy store, it's like they, there's, it costs more so, and, and it's also like you've got a special venue you have to go to at the entertainment quarter and mm. it's usually people go there as a date night. So they're already mentally like this is going to be a good show and they assume it's a comedy store, it's the best venue in Sydney that they're going to put on good acts. So you're already mentally like this is going to be a good show and that does half the work for you. So yeah. that when you go out there and you say your jokes, they just kill in right. a way. Whereas if you go to some um, – if you go to some random pub and they're like, "Oh, hey, there's comedy on," yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. and like, oh, Hope I this guess- doesn't bother you, but yeah, this yeah. guy will be talking about prison in the corner. <laughs> yeah. If this is a comedy show and you're like, "Oh, yeah. you like take it or leave it," and like yeah. you're there and it only costs you a few bucks, mm. then like you're not really you're more in the headset is you're more combative mindset. You're like, yeah. "Okay, impress me, make me laugh." Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. there's just yeah, you notice all these things about comedy venues and the way that they structure both the room and also how they sell the show that all goes into it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I do gigs all over a kind of mostly inner Sydney, kind of Newtown or uh, Potts Point, mm. uh, all kind of places like that. But um, now more and more, I'm getting more regional opportunities, and I find like those gigs sometimes are just the absolute best. Um, mm. The further west I go, the more jail material seems to go down. <laughs> <laughs> you like found my market. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, mate, oh yeah, oh, guys, come to me. I've okay, been, here's I've been a question: <laughs> Would you ever do comedy at a prison? 
So, okay, so good question. Yeah. This is on my like my list of of like, my ten year goals. Yeah, I've started by um, hopefully I'm going to be invited into a juvenile detention center soon to do um, like just speak to the boys about mm. just my my life. But that's the first step. I've done my working with children check, and I work with a couple of guys that um, that go in there already as youth mentors. Yeah. So I'm hoping to get um, the green light to go in there in the next um, six months. Mm. And then I want to hopefully work that way up to one day being able to film a comedy special uh, in Long Bay Jail. Yeah, that's a great idea. Would be so much fun. Yeah, and I think I, it would hopefully be mutually beneficial that because uh, the guards or the the governor of the prison could also like be like, "Hey, boys, if you just behave for a little while, we can yeah. we can do this." Yeah. Uh, and so it, hopefully, could I thought be- you were going to say it'd be good promotion for them. <laughs> <laughs> we want to really get the word uh, out there about Long Bay. Uh, it's good, the place to be. A good draw card to help them. Just like yeah. you know, if there's we are going to bury silver water. It's- <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, we'll see what happens with that. But it's, but I think it's not completely impossible because my main audience at the at the moment seems to be either um, corrections officers, cops, lawyers, and crims, either ex-crims or current crims. That's, that yeah. seems to be um, the people that come to my shows. I, I find that interesting because I, I think that pe- regular people that aren't, don't fit those categories mm. often have quite a fascination with underworld stuff. Absolutely. I mean, true crime podcasts are yeah, booming. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I think that that's definitely something which um, has been – to my advantage, the peop- when I'm at noisy gigs where they're not really listening to people, when I start talking about prison, people usually shut up because mm. they're like, oh, this is interesting. Mm. Um, you were talking about the stuff that you were doing with the kids. Yeah, so that's that's a pathway hopefully for me to one day be able to go in and, and perform at a prison. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's just – Cool that those are buckets of people that um, identify to me that they come and perform that that they um, like coming to my shows. But uh, yeah, I think that the step for me now is that that I'm moving towards is just trying to work on material that is not prison related. I I, I used it as a vehicle because it was something which I felt strongly about, and I and it was it, it, it tapped into that creative mind. And it was something that differentiated myself that I could write jokes about, but now it's like, okay, you've done that. You've done mm. that show. Now um, I, I – and I was worried that I – that it was just like a one-trick pony. This was yeah, you don't want to be typecast. About. Yeah, right. And so I've had other comics go, no, you're just you, – you're not a um, – you're not a guy that does jokes about prison. You're a comedian who just chose to do jokes about prison, right, but you can do a, a jokes about whatever you want. And yeah. that I think felt quite reassuring to me because like I, there were times where I just I felt a bit of that imposter syndrome where I was like I, I, I've only had the success that I've had because I had a good story behind me and when that runs out, yeah. <laughs> I'm fucked. Yeah. Well, I mean that's kind of what I was trying to get at before when you were saying talking about the public speaking stuff. Mm of wanting to be of value to people over and above my disability or just having a disability. Absolutely. Like finding those things, you know, within you that were relatable and transferable and adding value to people's lives is very important, at least from my perspective. So yep. for you, it's going to be like, okay, what do I segue into now? Now that I've got this persona, um, you know, and I talk about prison and all these types of things, but you've obviously got that kernel and that spark where you can make things funny no matter what they are. Yeah. You're not going to necessarily go and talk about, I don't know, airlines or something like that, but it, you could segue into something that's sort of adjacent 
prison thematically at least. Yeah. And then w- which would open you up to a, a broader style of comedy, I guess. I think that's what I've seen with some of the content you put online that were you talking about. I mean, it's it's stuff which is compelling, but it doesn't it doesn't have to it, it just has no relation to you having a disability. Yeah. Right? It's about mindset, it's yeah. about all these other kinds of things, which is cool because it's like uh yeah you you could be successful as a speaker talking about those things without having any disability yeah that's true yeah if you just yeah and and it's interesting because a lot of the the i guess lessons that i've learned on life have been fast-tracked by the fact that i do have a disability but they're not related specifically to people who have gone through trauma or hardship or physical adversity you know and all of that kind of uh advantage from adversity stuff that I talk about, which I like to think of as uh, anti-fragility, which is a, an idea that was developed by Nassim Taleb when he talks about um, economies and ecologies and stuff like that. Um, being anti-fragile in a sense is something, it's a skill that you develop, you can develop when you have a disability. But I think that anyone can develop it. I don't think you have to go through that. Is this the same thing as resilience? What, is, what does this well, mean? Well, no, it's kind of, it's, it is more than resilience. So mm. if you think about like a wine glass being fragile, yeah. a rock being resilient, uh, anti-fragile would be something like your muscular system. If you lift weights, you get stronger. Mm. Or your immune system. If you're exposed to small parts of uh, a virus, you will develop antibodies to it. Yeah. And so it's it's using the small negative things that happen to you to actually get stronger as a result. And I think you can do that in your life by by reframing those negative events where you can, you know? True. I think Mm. there was something which uh, I read at the very start of your book, um, which really resonated with me. You obviously chosen for a reason, which was this quote by Thomas Paine. Mm. It said, the heart of the conflict, the more glorious, the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. Mm. And that really, I, just reading that uh, resonated with me because, uh, I mean, that's a big part about why this podcast exists. Mm. Um, you know, that uh, sometimes uh, you don't really find out uh, much about yourself until you have those conflict moments. Yeah. Um, and then you find that within you, you have the, uh, the resources to rise to the occasion. Yeah, and um, that's that's something which um, I uh, I'm constantly going through a learning process of learning about myself, and that and that was for me um, such a such a big thing was going through this mess of my own making, and then figuring out okay, well, what kind of man do you want to be? And realizing I didn't really like the man that I was, but I had the I had the capabilities to change that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And so that's why, yeah, I love talking to people on this podcast about crisis points and how they and and how that um, redirected them into a, such a positive path. Yeah, and and sometimes you know negative events can be accelerators for those things, as you just pointed out. Yeah. And I was found for me one of my frustrating pain points, I guess, was, uh, you know, I often get people that say to me, I I couldn't have gone through what you did. Uh, and survived or come out positive on the other end. And uh, when I started to think about, you know, because people say that to me all the time, the more frustrated I got because I was like, well, you don't know that. Yeah. I probably would have thought that as well before. You don't know what you're capable of until you're truly put in the position. Yeah. And if, if they get anything from my story is that, okay, you don't know and you might be extremely well adept to adapt and get through horrible circumstances and be absolutely fine. I think a lot of people 
uh, yeah, go through life not realizing just um, the, the the strength that they have within them yeah. until they're tested, right? Mm. So that I can imagine. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that people would say that to you because uh, they, when they haven't been tested, they just don't know. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we 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 there's that that driving force within people, particularly when you've reached conflict, that uh, is is so impressive mm. um, that. Uh, yeah, that's why I love spending my time talking to people that have gone through that because um, not only are the stories um, so fascinating, but it's just um, it's just such a, a a message that I think a lot of people can benefit from hearing. Yeah, well, I hope so. Awesome. Well, Hook, Line, and Sinner is officially out now. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the prologue, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it was awesome, man. So I look forward to reading the full book. I'll send it to you. Thank you very much. Thanks Tom, for having thanks me for on. coming Appreciate on. Appreciate it. Cheers, brother. Appreciate Shit's it. Shit's gone sideways. 